This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 602 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show RJ Casey. Now, RJ is probably a real version of the world's most interesting man. He is a former pararescue man, army ranger, contractor, stuntman, member of Team Force Blue, and so much more. So we discuss a host of topics from his incredible journey through the military branches to finding himself working in Hollywood and everything in between. Before we get to this amazing conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating you leave elevates this podcast, making it easier and easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you RJ Casey. Enjoy. So RJ, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you so much for inviting me to your home and making breakfast. <laughs> so no for, uh, for people listening, where are we sitting right now? 
So we're actually in New Smyrna Beach, Florida. Um, I moved here in about 2013, and it's an amazing little surf town here. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely gorgeous. So I know there's obviously a pretty cool reason why you're in this part of Florida as well, so we'll get to that. But I would love to start at the very beginning. You have such a storied journey so far. So where were you born? And then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Yeah, um, so... I felt very lucky to be born in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, not that Las Vegas is that great a town, but it's pretty wild and dynamic. And my dad was at fighter weapons school there. He was a fighter pilot in the Air Force. Uh, he did a couple tours in Vietnam with two different generation jets, uh, the F-105 and the F-4. And we moved around because of his career every two to three years, roughly, um, and the longest I ever lived in places was Texas, San Antonio, Texas, which I still love. And we were there for four years. And then we moved right from Texas to Germany. And that was quite the experience. Um, but I loved Europe. I didn't, I didn't actually want to move back to the States. It was just awesome. And, um, and so my mom's from originally from Texas. And my dad's this fighter pilot uh, from Madison, Wisconsin, from a huge Irish Catholic family. And uh, I had a brother. Uh, he was two years younger than me, um, Quinn. He got into the Air Force. He flew planes, and he still flies for Southwest Airlines, and he's in Scottsdale, Arizona with his family. So Beautiful. My uh, in-laws are in San Antonio, so I, I oh, there you sit go. in their backyard and watch the jets go over the, the top there. Yeah. Now, I had a couple of um, Vietnam-era um, members of the military. One was General Capers, who, excuse me, Major, Major Capers, who was um, a Marine Raider. No, let me say that. I'm going to cut that bit out. One was Major Capers, who was one of the original Marine Recon in um, Vietnam, and another one was Richard Rice, who was Delta. And both of their perspectives of coming home after that particular conflict were less than positive based on some of the ticker tape parades of the World War II generation and, and maybe some of the, the members that come home now. What was your dad's experience of that, that time, you know, when peacetime hit? Was, did, did he have any, any powerful stories of, of, uh, either, um, what would be the right word? people's gratitude or was it kind of the opposite you know he, <clears throat> excuse me he, he didn't really have any um stories and you know didn't have a lot of you know nightmares or i i never got a sense of a negative response society-wise of him coming home he was basically went from the f-105 second tour f-4 and then flew F-4s until he got in the F-15. And he was always focused on making the jet he was in, you know, getting to know that jet and, and pushing the performance levels of it and waiting for the next jet to come out. So he ended up in the F-15. And eventually he retired and um, one of his uh, squadron commanders from Germany invited him to work on the F-22 as his retirement job. And he loved that. Like he was like, RJ, you can't wait to see what this plane is going to be able to do. And, and I watched the F-22 and air shows and I'm blown away. Like, it's just insane. And, um, you were talking about Rich Rice. Yes. So he, uh, I sat down with him at GORUCK in Jacksonville and I couldn't believe his history. Like the different units he helped create, uh, just his 
his contribution to SOCOM and, and the special operations community is amazing. So I'm, yeah, he's an awesome human. And the other thing that you talked about Vietnam, um, the guy who actually introduced my parents while they were in flight school was a guy named Bunny Tally. And Bunny was called Bunny because he's kind of a ladies man, you know, <laughs> so he, he, uh, that was his call sign, Bunny. And he basically said, you know, Casey, you have to go on this. You have to come out tonight. And he's like, Bunny, we have a test tomorrow. Like, like, what are you doing? Like, God, I'm not partying tonight. No. And he goes, no, no, no. It's a date. It's a double date. This girl won't go out with me unless you go out with me. He's like, Bunny, come on. And so finally he talked to him enough to where my dad went. And that night he met my mom. And Bunny Tally, when they both went to Vietnam, was shot down, and he was a POW for six and a half years. Really? Yep, and he literally, he just passed away a couple days ago. So my brother and I got the news um, from his daughter, Emmy, uh, that he passed away in Dallas, Texas, and just an incredible human being. Um, my parents both passed away from cancer. Uh, one in 2012, my dad from uh, glio, a very aggressive form of brain cancer. And then my mom was diagnosed as my dad was finishing his treatment with lung cancer, um, went into remission for about a year and passed away two years after my dad. And my brother, being way smarter than me, figured out, he goes, do you know that, that mom and dad spent the exact number of days on earth? So they they both passed away at the same exact age. And I was like, how would you even think to, you know, and he was like, yeah, I know, it's just, I just saw the dates that we were going to put on their, you know, their uh, tombstones at Arlington, and I just started doing the math, and, you know, it's they both died at 70 years old and this many days, and I was like, wow. Um, but between their passing, I was graduating from the combat rescue officer school, and when I found out the exact date I was going to school, as soon as I got into Albuquerque, New Mexico at the apprentice course, I said, do you have a graduation speaker? Because we're going to graduate in a month and a half. And they were like, no, we've got a couple ideas. And I was like, Bunny Tally is going to speak at our graduation, I hope. So we don't have a speaker. I'm going to call him right now. So I called him and he showed up a couple of days before our graduation. And my dad never really talked about Vietnam and, and Bunny didn't either. Um, I remember when we were driving across country, we'd stop at his house and he was at American Airlines at the time. So he lived in Dallas for a very long time and he was one of their senior captains forever. And then he retired and just stayed there. Um, but I remembered he was one of the few people that my parents knew that had a pool in their backyard. And so we'd go to the pool and, and unfortunately, as a result of six and a half years in the Hanoi Hilton, you know, when we were at his house, you could hear him scream at night and it was every night. And when he would come out to the pool, like there was not much skin on his back that wasn't covered in scar tissue. And, and he was the most humble, gentle, like amazing guy as a lot of POWs are and were because they're passing away at a rapid rate. Um, but when he gave his speech, literally you were either laughing because his stories were so funny and comical because things happen comically in combat zones. 
and or you were crying your eyes out because you couldn't believe that and a human could endure some of the things that those guys endured it was it was a, an amazing speech and uh he the day or two leading up to that him being the guest speaker he talked to my brother and I about Vietnam and like it was just it was pretty amazing anyways well no well thank you for that and i think that the humility firstly is a huge thing i mean you mentioned rich rice and i don't know if i know a nicer person on planet earth that's also probably one of the most dangerous people on planet earth and yet you get you know and we, we talk about the entertainment industry that you're in as well and we were just talking before we were recording about mm-hmm. some of the humble great humans in that but there's oh, a yeah. lot of peacocks in that in, and in my profession in the fire and military and everywhere else but that humility but also I saw the same with the World War II generation. There was a lot of bottling it up and keeping it inside. And I think the Vietnam especially. Um, so for them to be able to realize that this environment now they can start talking about that is so important. Um, with when you were talking to him to survive something like the Hanoi Hilton is, you know, unprecedented. What? Where did he go mentally that he was able to endure all that physical mental torture? You know, I don't think I ever specifically, I kind of just let him talk. And I don't think he ever described the places in his mind that he went. But my dad would talk about, uh, and my dad was actually um, his escort officer when he came back. And uh, I'll tell you a quick funny story. The first meal that he had that wasn't provided by you know whoever his first home cooked meal was at my parents house because my dad was at the pentagon and they were living in lorton virginia and so my mom makes like what she one of her best meals um and she was like couldn't wait to give him his first home cooked meal and so it was it was chicken and wild rice and so bunny's eating and and my mom's like, what do you think, Bunny? He goes, oh, the chicken's amazing. The chicken's so good. And she goes, you don't like your rice? And he goes, not so much. I'm probably not going to eat rice for a while. And my mom <laughs> just burst into tears because she realized that's probably all he ate for the last, you know. And she was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I did that. Um, but my dad was talking about how he won, like, the air squat competition. And, like, they would do things in to keep their mind off things. And that was about as close as I got it. Um but another story that I heard about Bunny, uh, and he didn't tell it. I, I heard it from um, one of the guys from the embassy. But the first ambassador when they reopened the U.S. embassy in Vietnam was a POW. And Bunny was like, how can you go back there? Are you insane? Like, what are you thinking? He's like, Bunny, you really need to come back here with me. And And the guy had been over a couple of times. And he goes, you know, it's it's different. And he goes, I just got this incredible closure by going back there and reestablishing. And he goes, you know, it was war and there's no war now. So it's kind of good to go back and, you know, whatever. But he was like, you're crazy. I'll never go back. And so he's like, you're going back. And so years he worked on Bunny, like, Bunny, please just, hey, this might be my last year. Please come back. And so during his last year as the ambassador, Bunny went over there. And so he was part of a delegation, basically. And so there was congressmen, senators, and, and Bunny was part of that group that was getting a tour. Um, and they took a tour of the Hanoi Hilton. Yeah. And uh, so Bunny's like, I can't believe I'm doing this, but, you know, whatever. So they're walking through it. 
And they walk through this like L-shaped hallway and they turn the corner and Bunny's at the end because he's, you know, kind of staying in rooms and, you know, looking at things. And he was at the back of the pack because he wasn't a congressman or senator asking the their tour guide questions. He was just like probably remembering a lot of horrible things. And um, so they, they, you know, take this corner and Bunny's like, hey, well, what about this room? And the whole group looks back. And Bunny is basically standing in a corner, you know, that corner of the L-shaped hallway. And he was he's pointing to the corner. And they're like, room, what are you talking about? Even the tour guide was confused. And he goes, this room. And they were like, Bunny, come on, let's, let's go. And Bunny just steps to the corner and just disappears. And it's an optical illusion. And there was a gap in the wall about like that. And you had to be standing at a certain angle or you wouldn't see it. And Bunny just disappeared into this room. And they're like, what the hell? So they, like a couple of people walk back and they walk through that gap because you can see it as long as you're standing on that far wall. And so they all end up in this room and it was a, it was a room about the size of this. So smaller than a racquetball court, definitely not as high, but one of the walls had these half shaped volleyballs all over that wall. And it was just, kind of brown and you know it basically stained and it was obviously it was blood and um the tour guide was like sir i've never heard of this room much less been in here i'm not trying to deceive you i'm i can't apologize enough i'm really sorry and he was no it's okay i've just spent a lot of time in this room and um and one of the congressmen was like well, what is this and he pointed to the wall with the half volleyballs and he goes well they they shaped it this way so when the guards threw you under the wall, you hit it at a different angle every single time. And uh, like I said, I spent a lot of time in this room, so that's probably why I knew about it. And and then they kept on with the tour, but that was the other story I remembered about him going back. God. Yeah. This is why I love these conversations. I mean, you, you hear oh. these stories, especially if someone's passed away. I mean, Rich Rice, he also went back to Vietnam. I think it was yeah. it was to research boots yep. for a go rock. Yeah. Amazing story. Because they wanted their boots made in Vietnam. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. And you, you said as well with the pilots. I mean, I, I haven't heard obviously of the airline industry because that's not my world, but you don't think that the person at the helm of, you know, the seven four seven that you're on may have been, you know, in, in Hanoi or wherever at some point. But certainly in the EMS field, the 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 lot of the pilots that, you know, fly the the um the EMS helicopters, yeah, medevacs yeah. and all those. Um, you know, I've heard stories of how they'll just like nosedive and <laughs> stop right above the hospital H. And yeah, I mean, but you think about that generation that didn't feel like they were able to talk. One of my guests said that a lot of the 22 suicides that we hear about a day, a lot of those are actually the World War, excuse me, the Vietnam era because they were able to transition and throw themselves into some sort of corporate position. And now is when they're starting to retire out and be in that room, you know, on their own. And, you know, I found this busyness is one negative coping. I mean, it can be a positive thing too, but, you know, we see it in the fire service. People just take over time and, you know, just fill their time with stuff. Yeah. Well, you take that generation. Now that stuff's taken away. Now you're forced to retire because you're 60 or whatever. And I think that's from what I hear is you're we're losing a lot of the Vietnam era from, from suicide. Yeah, you're you're left alone with your thoughts, and they go to dark places, and it's yeah, 
it's uh in fact we i think it, you've probably heard this a lot um i think the world war ii generation they had a bunch of things going for them as horrible as that whole event was and living through that um they didn't get on planes and land in San Francisco or wherever, you know, a couple, less than a day later from a combat zone. The World War II guys were put on boats and they had two weeks and they were amongst themselves. And so they talked out a lot. Uh, and they might not have talked to their families, but they definitely talked to each other. And, and that was different. And then to come back as heroes you know, and have ticker tape parades or at least not, you know, the negativity that Mm -hmm. was, it was, you know, post Vietnam. Uh, so they had a couple things going for them and the greatest generation, they came back and accomplished a lot of amazing things, you know, as opposed to Vietnam where basically there, some of them were brought out of combat zones, maybe had a shower, maybe not put on a plane and within 24 hours, boom, they're back in, the U.S. culture and the U.S. culture was not, you know, there was not a good view of, of that war. They weren't saving freedom throughout the entire planet. They were invading another country and whatever, whatever the line was back then, but it was definitely negative. So, uh, there was a lot going against the people that went and fought in Vietnam. So, unfortunately. Absolutely. Well, I sat down with, I had, um, Emily McCarthy. Um, Jason and then Rich all in separate episodes after the Afghan withdrawal I saw forget the politicking I saw the effect on the human beings that served over there I had Afghani the nationals um, Fahim Fazli who's actually an actor Um, so I had him on I had you know had all these different perspectives from a human point of view. So I sat down with Jason, Emily and Rich together and oh, wow. asked them and I just shut the hell up. What do I know? I'm a fireman from you know England originally to give their perspective on that. And it was absolutely fascinating. Now here we are, you know, staring at potentially another conflict. We talked about the impact, you know, of, of World War II. We talked about the impact of Vietnam, you know, everyone's just come back from the Middle East without loading the question at all. We, you know, as people say, we're doomed for history to repeat itself. What is your perspective of what we're looking at right now? Um, when you were talking about Afghanistan, uh, do you know Wally from Black Rifle? Um, no. Okay. So I, I'll definitely give you his information, but he was, uh, on one of our projects over in Afghanistan and he was actually one of those, the commanders eventually. And did a lot of great things for Afghanistan. And um, he came back and Evan Hafer and the guys at Black Rifle basically made sure he had, he and his family had a really good job to come here too. And um, so they he's, helped he's him. Afghani. You told yes. Me. Okay. Yeah. And I saw, I was on a Randy Couture movie in Nevada and they said, yeah, we, we have this Afghan boy. And I was like, and I, in my brain, I was like, oh my God, they should call Wally if they need Afghanis. Like they're right there in Salt Lake City. But, uh, unbeknownst to me, it was his son in the movie. Really? And Wally was there. And I was like, oh my God, like I haven't seen you in years. And I had pictures on my phone that he didn't have from his project. And, uh, so we caught up and I was like, oh, remember this guy? Remember this guy? He's, where did you get these pictures? I don't have any of these. So, um, 
yeah, Black Rifle is doing some amazing things. And I'm really good friends with Evan Hafer. And uh, back to movies, um, I was on with Jared Taylor, who uh, JT was uh, TACP for the Air Force. And he's one of the Black Rifle founders, yeah. isn't he? Yep. Yeah. He's, uh, he's always in the top three. And he's, you know, actually I was talking to him about Halo and how I was looking for vets to come over and help with that season two in Budapest. And uh, I was like, hey, I'd love to tap into your guys' network. They're going to need some aviation guys, uh, some medical people, which is PJs, 18 Deltas, um, and also guys that are calling in aircraft, you know, whether they're calling in for a medevac or they're calling in for ordnance. Um, I really want to make sure all that's correct for the show. So what do you think? And he goes, well, what do I think? I think I'm still in the top three at Black Rifle and I'm going to be busy for the next few years. So, but let me put you in touch with people. So really good group of guys and, uh, I'll, I'll definitely give you his information. Yeah, well, Evan, I'd love to get Evan on. I mean, all, all of them are phenomenal. I'm actually supposed to be having Tier on soon. Oh, I don't know well. if you, you've come across with him, but uh, I know because they they have that altruistic branch of their organization, which as we started talking before, it's kind of the core of what I do. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a singer, actor, whatever, it's whether you're a good person. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he's supposed to be coming. But no, they all they all seem amazing. And then Evan was on Joe Rogan. I think it was with Matt. As yep. well, yeah, um, and you know that whole show. discussion of the you know industrial military complex and and coffee. I freaking love coffee too, but you know that <laughs> that aside, I think it's so important for us. And I'll ask you the question as we get there to to get as you know Sebastian Junger calls it the kind of um, veterans town hall perspective of what our men and women do, mm-hmm. and as we look at possibly another conflict, have an understanding like at what point do you justify sending our children? overseas to do things in the name of our country and world war ii i think was completely justified and i always said it terrifies me but i'd be the first in line for that mm-hmm. i grew up with the falklands conflict for example i struggle with that a little bit more i feel like maybe that could have been diplomacy resolved but i mean again i i was a child then i don't know the the ins and outs but um you know it's a it's a huge responsibility we have. And, you know, I love that kind of walk softly, but carry a big stick, be the peacemaker until you can't anymore. But I seem to see a lot of chest beating from people who have no skin in the game when it comes to their family and loved ones actually dying in combat. Yeah. It's um, to, to watch what's going on in the Ukraine uh, on social media and not have a, a direction from our leadership. um, You know, that's, that's, pay scales way above mine um but you're watching the ukrainians like and hit the president you know just setting the example and leading his people to say not on my watch and you have all these men women and children you know it some are escaping out of necessity and some are like okay where are they passing out weapons and how much ammo can i have more you know and that's their default like we're not this will not stand and we will stand up to this um it's incredible and it i'm sure uh a lot of my friends are can't wait to go over there and help those people like you can't watch and read stories about what's going on over there and not want to help them so it's um you know where's that line where i've done enough for my country or for you know fighting i think you can't 
see a situation like that and not want to help out. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's been interesting because I, I put a couple of posts up and again, I didn't want to contribute to that feed that's just full of these awful images because at the end of the day, we can only control what we can control. And we as Americans, English, wherever we are on planet Earth, need to focus on making our houses, our households better, and then our community better. You know, us worrying about the Ukraine right now is is not the number one priority. That is for the people that are actually paid to do that. But I had Russians sending me videos. Hey, here's, you know, here's some of the fake propaganda that's out there. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm a, I'm a fireman sitting in Ocala, Florida. I got these <laughs> Russian people sending me this stuff. But it, it, the truth to me, ultimately, and I, I wrote this on the post, take a Ukrainian soldier and a Russian soldier, a regular one, not, you know, someone that's completely like brainwashed, sit them down. They probably want exactly the same thing out of life. And yeah. you see this over and over and over again. And, and even with environment this, for you and your family. And yeah. And even with the kind of, you know, invasion thing, we to the Afghani people at a certain point invaded their country. You know what I mean? So the core is that humanity element. And, but what you see over and over again, I'll be kind of curious to get your perspective is ultimately it seems whether it's slavery, whether it's a lot of these wars, genocide, it's a, a hateful, greedy, power hungry few that affect the masses and how how do you get a nation to stand up against the taliban al-qaeda you know to the point where they're crushed out rather than as we're seeing again all these russian men and women that are going to be murdering each other under some pretense of these few people that aren't even going to be on a battlefield yeah i would i would add uh human trafficking and that and sex trafficking like that's how are governments turning a blind eye or not, you know, as many departments as we have in the U.S., you know, government, how is there not something focused on problems like that? Um, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, those are, uh, you know, if Nick McKinley at um, Deliver Fund. Deliver Fund, yeah. He's actually who got me in the movie business. Oh, really? He's on yes. the show. Um, I just yeah. had Cara, actually, on a few weeks ago. Oh, there ago. you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're doing as much as they can to combat that, and it's everywhere. It's like, how is that everywhere? How is a trade based on trafficking children everywhere? Anyways, yeah, as far as what's going on, like I said, that's uh, way levels above mine. Um, but, you know, you get these briefs and you, you know, find out. And like you said, there is a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of fake news out there and then you're getting these briefs about, you know, quote unquote ground truth and you're like, how is this happening? And that's all I have to say about that. Well, let me, let me ask it a different way then. Cause so I, another thing that I like to do on the show is when someone, you know, an organization, a nation is doing something well, I'll try and get them on the show. So whether it's a PE program from 1950s California, whether it's the prison program, from Norway, there are people around the globe that are doing things incredibly well. Mm-hmm. We seem to find ourselves in conflict. We have areas, I mean, you know, for example, um, you know, Palestine, Israel, I mean, you know, all these, these areas that are just constantly fighting. Are there any countries that you've seen that the environment they're creating through their leadership and their culture 
is promoting peace. I mean, for example, Switzerland. I don't know how the hell they went through World War II and not, not getting into it, you know. But And there's yeah. one thing, you know, apathetic, well, genocide is happening. But there are nations that don't seem to be dragged into conflicts, that don't seem to be, you know, pitting their people against each other, don't seem to be, yeah. you know, trafficking or, you know, wiping out, cleansing, you know, ethnic groups. So are there any, in all your journeys around the world, are there any kind of countries that you hold as a... Yeah, maybe a blueprint to to improve some of this conflict that we're seeing. I've heard of a few countries that um, culturally, from you know elementary school up, have made it a big part of their curriculum to teach manners and to teach caring and empathy and you know and like you said, um, you know, peacefully and quietly go about their lives, but not take any crap carry a big stick and if you need it you have it uh, and if you don't drive on um and one of the things while you were just coming to that question the um basically the medal of honor foundation has a curriculum that they're trying to get into elementary schools and middle schools and even high schools that they took the elements of they they basically studied anyone who received a medal of honor and said what attributes link these guys and uh, they came up with a, a number of attributes and a number of examples to highlight you know and this is how this attribute is here's an example of that and so there's multiple stories for each uh, attribute and so they want to take that curriculum and, and lace it through the academics and so that our culture and they have it in a few states, but basically the goal is to have a culture where, you know, decency is taught, you know, uh, common courtesy, um, doing your best when nobody's looking, integrity. Um, that, that gives me hope. And I know a couple of the directors at the um, Medal of Honor Foundation, and their son actually teaches at the business school at the Citadel. And he had me talk to his students. And uh, I'm just, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, trying to get them plugged in with my congressman, Mike Waltz, um, who's the congressman of Volusia County here in Florida, luckily for me. Um, he's the only special forces qualified guy in federal congressional history, which I find that mind-boggling. Really? Of all the special forces guys in you know, the Vietnam era and since, not, you know, very few have got, There's a few SEALs in, in politics now, um, you know, and that's all post 9-11. Uh, and they even had some from the Vietnam War, but there was no special forces guys until Mike Walls. So there's a couple more now coming up for this next election, uh, election throughout the country. There's one in Texas and a couple other states. But anyways, to help that foundation, you know, go forward to some of the school systems in, in different states and try and populate that. I mean, that's kind of a start. I guess. Yeah. Well, Finland is one. I had a guy, Passi Salberg, who's, who now lives in Australia, but he tours talking about the Finnish education system. And again, there's a lot of the, the holistic child. So it's not yeah. standardized testing. It's, you know, the well-being and they'll put more money into the underserved communities to give them the tools to raise these kids up, you know? And I think even when you look at what you do, what I do, or I did, um, it, our service, albeit, you know, dangerous and, you know, in some branch of the military, obviously you have to take a life, some parts of um, law enforcement you might have to. 
it's still driven by kindness and compassion. And if you lose that element, and and now you know, let's say for example, the military is is kind of seen as this like killing machine versus the core, which is where you're trying to preserve life and save lives. Then again, we deviate from you know, ironically, the very doctrines that many people subscribe to, which is you know whether it's Christianity or Buddhism or whatever, which is you know the kindness element. And I think. I don't know. I just feel like, as we were talking earlier, the narcissism and and some of this hatefulness and social media and go and get me started on these fucking presidents we had recently. <laughs> you know, supposed to be the 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 role models. You know, spouting this this hateful stuff. Um, we need to circle back to the very thing that causes us or or um, leads us into service, which is kindness and compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, service before self is like. It's funny when we started Brigands Co. I um, did two brothers that uh, had already started the company, and and I basically talked to them about helping them take their message a little, you know, from a wider lens. Um, but service before self, and and the whole integrity angle of doing your best when nobody's looking, uh, or especially when nobody's looking. It's just important, and I agree wholeheartedly. We need to circle back to, you know, a decent culture that actually cares about something greater than themselves. It's Absolutely. important. So others might live, as they say. <laughs> I've heard that somewhere before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Where have I heard that? Yeah. Well, the whole par- pararescue thing. It's um, it's it's pretty cool. The rescue mission to when your job is to get somebody on their worst day back to their family as safely as you can. Um, that's it's very gratifying. So speaking of your military career, I mean, you, I mean, you have such a an incredible journey, but it seems like medicine and, and, you know, preserving life is at the core of your particular path. So kind of walk me through your entry into the military and then you know, the different kind of medical roles that you served under. Yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of funny when you talk to guys like, what got you in the military? And it's amazing. Uh, a lot of them will say, especially when you go to the Rangers, like, what got you in the military? Oh, Black Hawk Down, of course. That movie, when I saw it, I knew I had to be a Ranger. Um, I'm so old, there wasn't movies like that. Uh, <laughs> the Chuck and, Norris movies. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. That wasn't really probably attracting people to Delta Force or anything, but uh, they were great to watch and fun, and uh, you were rooting for them. So kill the bad guys and bring home the good guys. Um, but at the end of the day, it was actually an image that I saw on TV. Um, and I've talked about this with other people, but... Um, my dad being a fighter pilot was on a an accident board in Spain and we were we were living in Germany at the time and so he's like you know I'm going on this trip and I'm going to find out what happened uh, you know a pilot lost his life in a during a plane crash and we're going to get to the bottom of it so it was an interesting point in my life where i guess it was at the beginning of high school and at some point in high school, like for me, at least, I had to ask myself, what am I going to do after high school? This is not going to go forever. What do I want to do with my life? And at least initially. And so when my dad's friend said, RJ, what do you want to be when you grow up? It was always fighter pilot. Of course, I want to be a fighter pilot like my dad. And uh, 
it was just weird timing. And my dad came home from this accident board and I said, so dad, you know, what happened? Like what caused it? And basically he described a part on the plane. It was not pilot error. The pilot didn't do anything wrong. And I was like, well, that's, that just didn't compute. Like, you know, I don't mind, you know, dying for my country. And I don't think anybody who joins the military, that's obviously a part of it. Um, but, you know, to, to die because of something that you couldn't, not that you couldn't control, you know, what happens in combat, but in my mind, in my little high school, you know, freshman mind, I was just like, I, you know, I want it to be something that somebody has something to do with, not some gasket that went wrong. And because it, you know, wasn't the maintenance wasn't kept up on it. Like I want it to be, I want to have something to do with me either living or dying, like not, not some part on some random piece of gear. So, um, I saw a commercial for special forces and, you know, guys jumping out of planes, coming out of the water on some magical coast that, you know, some bad guy was on or something like that. So I, um, I actually was very attracted to special forces and I called the number at the end of the commercial and the special forces recruiter gave me a book list and I read almost every book on that list as I was given like book reports throughout my high school career. And the more I read, the more I was just like, yeah, this is small teams. Everybody has a specialty. Everyone has a you know job and the team as a whole goes and does these amazing things. So special forces was definitely uh, the direction I wanted to go in. And towards the end of high school, we ended up in Virginia and my dad started seeing all these recruiters come to the house because I was looking at all the different special operations units and all the different branches from Marine Recon, Rangers, Special Forces. Uh, I didn't know too much about Air Force Special Operations. Um, but my dad basically said, you know, hey, um, I know you basically just got good grades so you could keep playing sports and that's your thing. And you keep talking about special forces, you know, the army doesn't treat people like the air force does. And I was like, well, that's kind of the point. It's the mission. And, um, so basically I ended up special forces and eventually I circled back around to the air force, but, um, special forces was a really cool place. And I learned a lot about small unit tactics, um, going in and helping countries make it better for them. Um, training them to have their own units do what they need to do to protect themselves uh, and protect, you know, their families. Um, and then eventually I got exposed to pararescue. Um, and it was, it was weird at a point where I was civilian contracting and I was still in uh, 19th special forces out of West Virginia, which, uh, I had a blast in like I had a lot of good mentors there. Um, Tom Workman and, and a bunch of guys in 19th group, uh, just a bunch, really great group of guys basically raised me, um, in the military. And I was also contracting at a point. And so I was traveling and these guys, you know, nine 11 happens. And my company was like, Hey, you cannot, stay in the military. Like you're going to get hit with year long deployments. 
um, year and a half long deployments and there's no way you can be gone that long. So I just happened to find myself in, I, I looked at PSYOPs, civil affairs, and everybody in the Army Guard and Reserve was getting hit with a year plus. So I was like, oh, God, I guess I'm going to have to get out. And I found myself in Colombia at a crash site in the beginning of the spring of 93. And um, and I was telling, a, a, I'm sorry, um, what was that? No, that was 2000. Three, ninety-three. That was my first trip to Columbia, actually. Um, but in two thousand three, I was there, and uh, Rob Trexler was a seventh group, a former seventh group, eighteen Delta. And I was like, "Yeah, Rob, you know, I'm, I, I've looked at all these reserve and guard units. I guess I'm really going to have to get out of the military." He goes, "Hey, man, you should check out pararescue." I was like, "The PJs? Like, I, I can't be on active duty, and he they don't have guard or reserve." And he goes, "The hell they don't. They have three squadrons of each." And I was like. Hmm. Well, I dig their mission. It's all rescue. It's really cool. And all the billets are dive and jump and their primary job is medicine. Yeah. You know, wow. Garden reserve. I didn't even know that. So I got on the computer and found a couple of units and interviewed and, and I joined the New York team and I uh, really loved it. And I kept contracting too, obviously, but for pararescue, the, when I first started with them, their deployments was one month and you could extend to three months, but you couldn't go past three months. And I was like, wow, that's perfect. You know, that's, I can do that in between my civilian trips. This will be great. So I ended up on the New York team for a few years and um, yeah, that's kind of, kind of how it went. And then uh, eventually though, I was gone so much with my civilian job. I was gone anywhere from six to eight months a year in these combat zones. And New York was like, hey, man, we love you like a brother, but man, you are red all the time. Why don't you check out the reserves? They have part-time combat rescue officer slots. There's not; They have half the requirements that PJs do as far as currencies go. You know, why don't you go check that out? Um, like I said, love you, but, you know, if you want to stay in, maybe that's the route you should look at. So I looked at joining the Tucson team, but eventually I ended up on the Patrick team here in Florida. And I loved it because my parents were at the villages and uh, I wanted to be closer to them. And they were having a good time. They were golfing and traveling to Italy and enjoying their retirement. So I I uh, ended up coming down here. Beautiful. Well, you talked about Colombia. So go and kind of turn the clock back a little bit. Um, one of the lenses, again, I think that you guys get, that we get, um, is the the war on drugs. And, you know, when you think of Colombia, obviously you think about the cocaine trade. When you think of, you know, Mexico, you think of more, you know, what used to be marijuana. Now I think it's opium, if I'm not mistaken. Um, early in the show, you know, I, I got an interesting lens on how Portugal had decriminalized addiction and the huge impact they'd made positively on their whole country, crime, addiction, everything. Um, when I asked people out, especially when they're in Afghanistan about that kind of element at first, it was very, very tight lipped. And about three years ago, all of a sudden people kind of seemed to be a lot more, you know, foregoing and talking about how the opium fields were funding the terrorist organizations that they were fighting. So retroactively in 2003, what were you seeing, you know, boots on the ground as far as the impact of, um, you know, the drug sales, you know, illicit drug trade in, in that country? 
Yeah, in Afghanistan, uh, I and you know in Colombia too. Um, I was going there a lot, and they were like, "Yeah, you need to take care of that Colombian drug problem." And I was like, "Colombia doesn't have a drug problem. The U.S. has a drug problem. We keep buying it. They're going to keep growing it and producing it." Um, and you go down there, and you don't see coke at parties and in bars and it's not passed out like coffee and cigarettes were free in 93 <laughs> uh <laughs> drugs were nowhere to be seen and obviously drugs were in a couple different places um but not like in the u.s man the 90s uh from miami to new york to la and it just from that triangle it just grew inward until it was everywhere um i think at one time Colombia was responsible for, it was something ridiculous, like 98% of the cocaine in this country was all out of Colombia directly. And it was something even crazier because you wouldn't think, with the Golden Triangle being in Asia, still over 90% of the heroin was actually from Colombia as well. So a lot was coming out of Colombia. <laughs> and at one point, they were the number one murder capital of the world, number one kidnapping uh, number one for heroin, coke, like you name it, they were number one of all the bad things in the nineties. Um, and then it just slowly migrated up to Mexico to that transition to actually get into the U S and, and all the violence moved up with it. And so you don't hear much about Colombia these days in that regard. Um, but yeah, you get over to Afghanistan and you're, you're, you know, hitting these targets and you're finding all this heroin and poppy fields and everything and initially it was like leave that don't touch it like shouldn't we dump it or set it on fire or do something they're like nope don't touch it and we're like huh that's weird you know and then you know years later then you know it was like hey destroy everything so there was a policy change at some point um and again that's you know way way above my pay grade so um, I, I did find that interesting, though. I was like, what do you mean don't get rid of this evil product that's probably going to end up in the U.S., and that's where all the money's coming from, or God knows where, Europe and everywhere in between. So, yeah, drugs is uh, definitely an interesting topic. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's something that I hit hard because as a firefighter paramedic, you know, we get to see behind the curtain. I mean, we, you yeah. know, we, we know what works you and what see doesn't. see all the results. Exactly. And, and they're not good. No. Yeah. And and it was a, a crazy story. I'll give you the, the cliff notes because people that listen to this podcast a lot have heard this lots of times. But okay. my mother and my brother moved to Portugal about 20 years ago. And uh, about a year or so into the podcast, my mom said, hey, did you hear what we did or what they did, the Portuguese government for addiction over here? I was like, no. And he said, they, they decriminalize, not legalize. And there's, there's a real misunderstanding. Like, okay, now you go to the, the Publix, the supermarket, and there's, you know, crack and meth and everything. No. But if you're an addict, you're not sent down the legal road. You're sent down the medical road. So in less than 10 years, they went from the worst addiction rate in, I think, if not Europe, certainly, I mean, if not the world, certainly Europe to the lowest addiction rate because you got detained. And you found a you know, personal use amount of drugs. If you were a smuggler or a seller, then, you know, you were going to prison. Different, yeah. um, and you got funneled into an interview. You got educated on the resources that are available, whether it's addiction counseling, um, mental health counseling, because I'm a firm believer, you know, addiction is a mental health element. Um, and then even job creation. 
So rather than give you a felony, which gives you a record, and now you can't work anywhere, they go through the medical route and they create, you know, a, an employment opportunity for you. And it, all those tools contribute to you, you know, finding that path back. Yes, there are still that percentage that, you know, they can't wean off and they have safe centers and they go to a medical facility. They take whatever it is that they take and they're observed and then they leave so they don't die of fentanyl overdose or any of these God things. Yeah. And then you look at the economic element, you know, economics 101 is supply and demand. So you remove the demand, you affect the supply. And as you said, and so many people now, and that's what I love about this podcast, I get all these international eyeballs, is if we understand that we're consumers and we put that power back in the hands of the medical community, not the underworld, you cut the head off the snake. Yeah. And now absolutely. you help Colombia, Mexico, Afghanistan, because if we don't need what they're selling anymore, maybe they'll go back to coffee, you know, or, or some other thing that the farmers can still make money, but they're not going to get decapitated if they, they don't farm for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, I'll definitely have to look into Portugal's program because we certainly need a lot more of that. Absolutely. All right. Well, then with the medical route, um, I know you were 18, 18 Delta, which I, as a civilian, understand is a, a medic for special forces. Um, and then I know you went into PA school. So kind of walk me through why you chose the medical route specifically rather than some of the other positions. Okay. So um, while I was in high school and I was reading all these books, um, I read about all the different jobs on a an A-team at the time, and now it's called an Operational Detachment A, or Alpha, um, so ODAs. But they went through position by position and talked about all these jobs. And I was fascinated with the fact that they could take a kid from high school and he ends up doing minor surgery, you know, and I was like, well, only doctors can do that. You know, at, my, at the time, that's kind of what I thought. Um, but in combat medicine, there's only a couple things that will affect the survival rate of somebody who's injured. And with some of your patients, they're so damaged that you could do everything right and they're still going to die. Um, and then there's some patients that are injured and you can do everything wrong and they're still going to live. So it's really, there's a balance and, and everything in between on those two ranges. Um, but I just found it really cool that uh, there was somebody on the team that was there to preserve life or to, if somebody got injured, you know, they were there to make sure that everything could be done to get him to a surgeon and, um, you know, he's going to survive that catastrophic event. So I was always attracted to that even in high school. And then when my dad talked to me about going to military school instead of enlisting initially, um, I ended up becoming an officer in special forces. And as an 18 alpha or a detachment officer, I had to know a little bit about each job on the team. So I got a glimpse of the communication sergeant and everything he did, the demolition or engineer sergeant and everything he did. And obviously the, the medical sergeant and everything the 18 Delta did. And, uh, the more I learned about him, the more I was like, yeah, that's, you know, if I had to do like, that's the one. Um, and then fast forward to 94, um, I had a free fall injury. I had two wind shears take me into some trees. Well, one take me off path. And then, um, the second one took me into some trees at 
the farmer said over 50 miles an hour, he goes, man, you were screaming into those trees. I can't believe, you know, and I'm on my hands and knees crawling because my foot is just hanging by skin. Literally all the ligaments in my tendons were perfectly ripped in half when I went screaming into these trees. Uh, and I was lucky that's all that happened. I could have easily got a branch through the sternum and out the spine, and I, I could have been still in that tree, actually. So um, we were way off our drop zone. It was the last jump of the day, and and there was a couple concussions on that jump because everyone had an, an, a miserable, crazy landing. Um, except for the jump master. He made it back to the drop zone because he pulled way earlier than we were all briefed. Because uh, he knew we were way off after he got out of the plane, and the rest of us kind of just trusted the spot, and we were kind of linking, you know, watching each other and linking up. And when it was time to pull, we we're like, "Where the hell are we?" And so we all dove for different places. Um, but make a long story short, I had a surgeon tell me, "You're never going to walk normal again." I was like, "Man, why don't you just cut and let me worry about what happens after that?" I was already mad because I was going to miss the trip we were actually training for. And I did not want to hear any of that. Just do your freaking job, man. Um, but uh, I had a really freak ankle injury on my right side. Um, I had a total tailor dislocation. And like I said, all my ligaments and tendons surrounding that ankle were just ripped perfectly in half. Um, there was a question about whether the blood supply was disrupted. Um, just medically, there's there's three places on the body where the blood supply doubles back on itself the ankle, the hip, and the thumb. And so they were really worried about the blood supply to my right foot, uh, my right ankle. So total tailor dislocation, really freak. Usually it's just subluxed and it's not that big a deal. Uh, I really wish I would have just broke it because I probably would have been on jump status within a couple months. But as a total tailor dislocation, um, and the blood supply in question, literally I was in therapy, physical therapy for about 11 months. Um, the first few months, obviously no motion at all, hoping that the blood supply would return. And then little by little, I'd start trying to break through that scar tissue. And um, But while I was in therapy for 11 months, I was like, you know what? I am going to revisit that whole medical dream. Um, I know I'm going to walk normal again, that doctor, whatever. You know, he doesn't know me. Um, and I'm going to just, I'm going to do anything I need to do as an officer. But as soon as that's all cleaned up, um, I'm going to drop my commission and I'm going to go to the special force and medical course with 19th group. And I'm going to stay on an ODA as a medic while I attend medical school. And so my whole goal was to go to med school and just really get into medicine. And um, so after I was signed back on to jump status, I did one or two more trips as an officer. And as it turned out, the whole 18 Delta pipeline or school had shut down for a year and half of it was at Fort Bragg and the other half was in San Antonio, Texas. And, uh, they shut it down to move everything to Fort Bragg and, uh, consolidate everything under one roof. So while that year was shut down, I ended up, you know, being able to line things up to be in the first all Fort Bragg 18 Delta course. And it was there I met my friend, uh, Aaron Holly. So Aaron was the first person to tell me what a physician assistant was. And then while we were on rotations in New York City, I found out what a PA was. And I was like, wow, that's, you know, that's not four years of med school, that's two years of PA school. 
I don't have to do a residency. They have a lot of less paperwork, more patient contact. That's that does sound pretty good. Now the PA program was actually started for military transitioning out, wasn't it? Have I got that right? Yes, you do. Uh, so Fort Bragg uh, during the Vietnam War was like, there's not enough doctors to fix all these people overseas. Holy crap! What are we gonna do? So a group from the medical corps drove up to Duke University and said, man, here's our problem. Is there any way you can fast track anybody in the direction of at least being a first assistant during surgeries? And uh, the physician assistant program was the result of that. Um, and so Duke University actually was the foundation of all PA schools, like they were the first school. And, uh, I didn't, I didn't really realize this, but, um, a really good friend of mine, Don Fiddler, a psychiatrist who I happened to be renting a room from. So I was living at his house in one of his spare bedrooms. He used to rent rooms to medical students that were coming up for either rotation or whatever. And, um, I had met him through mutual friends, and um, so I wrote him actually from Columbia in '93 and said, "Look, Don, I, you know, I know we don't know each other well, but I have one more semester of school. My unit is threatening to take my commission if I don't finish my degree. Can I rent a room from you for the spring semester coming up and get my degree, and you know, just not worry about where I'm going to live when I come back from this trip?" And uh, he actually wrote back and he was like, yeah, no problem. You know, so that was the spring of 94 and I was living at his house when I had this injury. And so he he's a big movie buff. Um, and he had like 400 laser discs or something crazy when laser discs were a thing. So I used to sit at home and watch movies at his house waiting for my physical therapy appointment. And one day, probably after a couple of weeks, he was just tired of me sitting on his couch watching these movies, waiting for my physical therapy appointments. And he was like, hey, RJ, instead of sitting around here watching movies, um, why don't you come to my med school class? You can sit in on the class, and after the class, we'll go have lunch. And then you can go to your afternoon physical therapy appointment. I was like, I don't know, sounds pretty good. Yeah, sure. So I went there. I sat in the back of the room during his class, and um, he was asking super basic questions to these first-year medical students. And um, and he would ask these questions that I I thought I knew the answers to. And he would say, you know, who who can answer this question? And nobody would raise their hand. And I didn't really look around the room, but they were all they probably all looked eighteen. And I probably looked like I was in my early 20s. So we get to lunch and Don was like, hey, what'd you think of the class? And I was like, I, was, I mean, the kids did not look like they were asleep, but why wouldn't anybody answer any of your questions? He goes, why do you think? And I was like, I don't know, it's med school. Like, they're all smart, right? And he goes, the reason why nobody asked, answered my questions, as basic as they sound to you, is because they did not know the answers. I was like, how is that possible? They were like super basic questions. He goes, it's possible because they don't have life experience and you do. You've been, or, you know, you've traveled the world, uh, you're older and just by those two things, you know a lot more than they do. Even though they're in med school and yes, they're really smart, 
they don't have life experience. And the biggest problem with medical school is we'll take a kid through and they'll be great test takers. They'll skip a year of high school because they're that smart. They'll skip a year of college because they're that smart. And they max every national test they take because they're that smart. But you get them after the first two years of med school, which I'm trying to change now, me and a, a small group of the medical educators in the world, especially specifically in the U.S., we're trying to get them exposed to patients their first year so that we can develop their people skills. Because imagine a kid who's so smart, he skips grades multiple times. Now he's a freaking doctor. And yet one of his most important skills is communicating with another human being that he's never done. Mm. You see the problem. It's so interesting because my wife said that the, her optometry program she's in now, she's 42, 42 this week. Yeah. Um, and so obviously, you know, she's got a lot of kids that are exactly what you're talking about and people in between, but they're pushing to try and have clinicals. I think, I think year two yeah. for that very reason, yeah. because I know the PA program, one of the prerequisites, cause I, I got all mine in line and just never nice. went forward, but it was the thousands of hours of, you still got time. time. <laughs> you still got time. I, sure. I, I just, I don't know if I wanted to be in the clinical settings. That was my own personal thing. I like scraping people off roads. Yeah. So well, there's, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it takes a certain personality to to love that too, Absolutely. and and to help people in in those horrible events. Um, but Don actually after that, um, that's when that that's probably one of the main things that also had my mind go to. I want to be, I want to go to med school, and I want to drop this commission, be a SF medic. Um, and th- so that conversation was pretty important. And then, uh, let's see what's next. So, um, he set me up with the president of the admissions board for West Virginia University's medical school. So I walked in there, um, and all we talked about, like for 40, the first 40 minutes, we talked about Ireland. And my dad's whole family is from County Cork and, um, on, on both sides. So South Ireland, and I'd been there a couple of times and we just talked about Ireland for 40 minutes. I'm like, this is a really weird medical interview. Like we're talking about Ireland. I can't wait to go back, um, especially to the South. And okay, whatever. So he asked me a couple of questions. And at the end of the interview, he's like, okay, your grades are ridiculous. They're, they're horrible. <laughs> like clearly you don't give a crap about academics. And I said, well, it's not that. Um, it's just that I am very excited about doing things with special forces. And anytime I can go to a school, I will skip out. And I tell all my teachers, Hey, I'm on orders. I'm going to leave and I'm probably not coming back this semester, or I'm going to come back in a month, depending on what the trip was. So I tell all my teachers and they're, it's a university. They're not exactly military friendly. So some, you know, market withdraw, some, market, whatever they market, you know, and it's usually half of them. It's not pretty. So my transcript is a mess. And he goes, okay, well, the good news is you're older. Uh, we need people like you with life experience to become doctors because you can clearly talk to another human being. And, um, he basically reiterated what Don had talked about. And, uh, he said, so this is the plan. You're going to do your prereqs. You're going to ace everything. If you think you're going to get a B, you drop that course and you take it again and get your CR together 
and you ace it. You ace every one of your prereqs and you hit, uh, you, you score mid level on the MCATs. You don't have to max it. You better not be towards the bottom of the pile. If you hit the uprights and you get in the middle of the pack and you got straight A's on your prereqs, given your history and your military and what you do for the military medically, you are in. I guarantee that. So it's a lot of work on your end. This is yours to lose. And um, so, you know, start this fall. And I said, eh, not so fast. I This is a long, super long road. And my plan is to drop my commission, my current commission, go to the Special Forces Medical Course. Um, that'll take care of a lot of these prereqs, like anatomy and physiology and a couple others. And, um, you know, after a year of being at Fort Bragg and, and going through medical training, then I'll, I'll finish up my prereqs and I'll be back. And he goes, ah, you should really just do this now. And I was like, no, nah, I, I need to go see if I really love medicine enough to go. You know, that's over 10 years. It's, you know, a couple years of prereqs, four years of med school, and then a minimum of three residency, a maximum of nine year residency. That's, that's a neurosurgeon. That's, those are super long roads to me at 30 years old. You know, it seems like a long time or whatever age I was. And uh, so I went to the SF Medic course. I meet Aaron Holly. Uh, were, you know, friends for decades after that. And he has a whole plan. He had been to Duke. Uh, he knew what a PA was. He had studied the military system to know that um, there was 30 National Guard slots a year to go to the Military Physician Assistant Program or IPAP, Inter-Service Physician Assistant Program. And he had a track to, to do all that, turn in a packet after the 18 Delta course and go. And uh, I was a couple of classes behind him, actually, because once I figured out exactly what a PA does, I was like, yep, that's more me than, than med school. And I went back and I told the guy from, from the admission board and he goes, okay, well, if it doesn't work out, come back. So he was really cool about it. But I ended up going to the military uh, PA program and um, I was glad I did. I got to do a lot of things uh, with the military and, and different agencies that I would definitely not have been able to do as a MD or a DO. So that's the medical story and how I got into it. Beautiful. Well, with Power Rescue, I've had quite a few members on, you know, this last few years. I mean, Roger Sparks, um, Stephen Nisbet I just had on who was uh, STS. Now, were you ever a part of STS yourself? No. Uh, so in, in New York, I never... Ironically, I never deployed to a combat zone as a military member until I got on the Patrick team. And I've deployed only twice out of 40 deployments. Like, that's pretty ironic, I think. 30 plus years in the military guard and reserve, and I've never deployed to a combat zone with special forces. I've, I've been on a lot of exercises, and I ended up making my switch in 2002, at the end of 2002, to pararescue. I signed into the New York team January of 2003. And while I was in New York, I was gone so much with my civilian organization. I just never deployed with them, even though I we overlapped in Afghanistan a couple times. Um, I was there as a civilian, and they were there deployed. Um but Roger Sparks, great human being, like he, Marine Recon prior, um, you know, pararescue on the Alaska team, did a lot of great civilian missions, and then 
ended up on Bulldog Bite and uh, his book, Warrior Creed, is awesome. I, I loved reading about his adventures and through Marine Recon and, and into Pararescue and, uh, and then diving with him and meeting his son Oz on Force Blue doing uh, marine conservation, uh, coral restoration, and turtle projects. He's been amazing. In fact, um, while I was on extraction, one of the guys from my unit, he was a CCT. He came to Patrick to join our reserve team with the, the pararescue RQS. And he because we were going the special warfare route where we were going to have TACPs, um, CCTs and PJs and other jobs in RQSs, uh, probably like, I think we have four or five CCTs that came to our unit and said, I, I want to join. And we we're like, uh, we're not special warfare yet. You know, we, we want CCTs here. Uh, we want to start a JTAC shop so you can help us with that. But, if it doesn't work out, are you willing to go the PJ route and go through that entire pipeline? Um, you won't have to go through the whole thing. You already jump and dive and all that. But um, what do you think? And all of them to a man said, yeah, absolutely. I, I actually, two of them were like, I actually, I want to go through the PJ pipeline, no matter what you guys do with slotting. So one of these guys called and said, Hey, I'm the senior NCO of my apprentice course. I want you as the guest speaker. And, the dates were kind of shaky, um, and I hadn't really been given my exact dates for Christmas Exodus from Extraction to uh, the movie. So I said, hey, look, do you know Roger Sparks? And the guy was like, yeah, actually, me and the guys, like, we, we, you're our number one and Roger's our number two. And I said, well, let me reach out to Roger because if I can't make it, which there's a high likelihood I won't be able to be your graduation speaker, um, I, I want Roger to step in and, and be your graduation speaker. Oh my God, that'd be awesome. Nobody can get a hold of him. I guess many classes have asked him and it's just crickets. And I said, well, Roger's pretty busy. He's got this book out. It's being converted to a movie. He's a busy t tattoo artist. He's on Force Blue. He's doing all these projects. He's a contractor. Like, you know, he does leadership talks. Like, he's a busy guy, but let me, uh, I'll call you back. So I called Roger and he goes, man, you know, I, I actually keep getting calls to do that, but when is it? And I told him, you know, January 7th. And so he goes, well, hold on. Actually, I'm going to be down in the States from Alaska, like around that time. I'm going to be in Texas with my wife's family for Christmas and New Year's. And then I can do it on the way out because I have some Force Blue stuff in California. Are you going to be there? I was like, no, nah, I'm. I'm out this, you know, I'm out until probably April 1st. Um, and he goes, okay, well, let me talk to the family and let me call you back. And sure enough, he ended up speaking and it worked out for uh, James and his whole team to hear Roger at their graduation. So love Roger Sparks. Big fan. Yeah. I actually had the honor of uh, seeing them again. They had the GORUCK tribe reunion, nice. which is my first GORUCK. And it's funny, I found out after the fact that it was heavier than most of their rocks. That was my first one. <laughs> that's so what, that's I'm how like, it either happens, I'm right? a giant pussy or this feels really heavy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was both. But um, <laughs> but yeah, but Oz was there again. I mean, yeah. it's amazing, amazing story. And obviously Roger's personal story with actually working on his own child. But the stuff yeah. that Oz is doing now, 
you know i mean that he's crushing it on these courses yeah he incredible is. and he actually reminds me diff- different background completely but there's a a guy chris nikich that i had on the show who is um uh down syndrome and he is wow. an iron man triathlete nice and again i mean you know oz and and, and chris their mindset surpasses 99.9% of the the men and women that I know. They're incredible human beings. Wow. Yeah. And they're, yeah, it's, it's been great to have Oz on the boat and the beach when we're doing these projects. And, uh, he's, he's amazing. And, uh, it's just, it's fun that there's, it's just a really good organization that it's kind of weird to take something that you were trained in the military for such, you know, a a dramatic or dynamic and and some might call it negative, but you know, when you're there to, you know, get bad guys and, and you're infilling by water and to take all those skills and to translate them to coral restoration or, you know, being part of a turtle study, you know, to help the turtle population. Like it's, it's really gratifying. And I feel very lucky to be a part of that organization. Like it's amazing. What other member of your team, Rudy Reyes, is supposed to be coming on? I've just got to nail him down. He, I think he was part of even um, Who Dares Wins, I think. He was. Yeah. He, so. so he just came back from Wadi Rum a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Rudy, man, he's uh, it, it's it's fun to hear Rudy's stories about Roger when he was an instructor at the recon unit uh, or the recon pipeline. Um, and his girlfriend, Jade, Actually, I'm really hoping both of them are on Halo Season 2 and 2 through 5 if things work out. Um, And I think the dates could work out because Rudy is scheduled for, he just finished, I think it's Season 2. Then they're definitely going to do Season 3 and he's a part of Season 3 as well. I'm not sure where they're going to film that, but uh, love Rudy. Like everybody on that team, if you look, if you look up, forcebluteam.org and you go to about and you drop down to veterans like every bio everybody on that team has just got this amazing bio like Andy Gambersky uh, Jeff Reeves um, Kaj Larson Jeff Gum like uh, it's it's a really cool organization I feel very lucky to be a part of it well and the through line again like we were talking about before we start recording is great human beings that serve for X amount of time and then transition out and want to serve more, you know? And I think whether it's actors, singers, military, first responders, those are the kind of humans I love getting on this show. Yeah. It's, um, there's another Marine recon guy, uh, Will, um, Will's on there and he does public speaking and he helped, he basically travels and helps companies, you know, go next level leadership wise and, and organizationally. So, like I said, every bio on there is, uh, you know, it's it's Angelo Fiore, uh, Jim Ritterhoff, um, Steve Gonzalez. Like, it's just, it's an incredible place. So I feel very honored to, you know, be able to go on some of those projects with them. And they did a lot. They're doing a lot with NFL and with Pepsi. Pepsi has a whole green section. Uh, and the NFL, I guess, when they go to a city to do the Super Bowl, they basically like, okay, we need to bring something positive that wasn't here before. So a lot of their stuff is conservation. And when they came to Florida three years ago, it was going to be in Miami. And they were like, hey, you know, can we plant some trees? Or like they went down the green route, the generic green route, I should say. And Florida was like, 
we want you to plant some trees, all right, but we want you to do it underwater. Like the, our, we have a huge coral problem, and and Force Blue luckily was in the right place at the right time to you know just take on that entire project, the hundred yards of hope. And then when they went to Tampa the following year, there was a big beach cleanup, and then all the coral that we planted down in Miami was actually raised in the Tampa area. So it was it was a re- weird small world story and it worked out really good. And so this past year when it was in LA, they did a big project. Um, I think it was the Santa Monica Bay Area. They did a huge cleanup there and um, it was it was pretty cool. And, and Oz, Roger, Rudy, uh, Steve, Angelo, a bunch of guys were on that project. Kaj, Jeff Gum. Um, yeah, it was good. It was good. I, I was over in Prague on this movie and I couldn't make it, but got a lot of the stories and uh, got sent a lot of pictures. Where are you? And check this out. And it, it's, they do amazing things. So like I said, it's an honor to be a part of that program. Beautiful. Well, you touched on the film world. I want to get to that in a sec, but just before I do, as I said, that kind of veterans town hall lens, you said you went on active duty specifically under, you know, the uh, the army's umbrella, but you know, you had obviously deployments in different kind of uh, uh, under different organizations. So the one question I like to ask anyone who's been deployed into a combat zone, because we as a civilians don't get a good lens into that, we we get the very polarizing kill them all, let God sort them out, or they're all baby killers, kind of you know, um, extremist reporting. Was there a moment in your career or maybe like a first moment where regardless of the politics that sent you to wherever that was, that you witnessed, you know, something that made you realize that there were horrible people that had to be taken care of? Yeah. um, So as a civilian and being on some of the ground projects I was on, you got a big whiff of that. Like you would get a big uh, target package and you would find out the history of the person you were going after. Maybe not everything, but definitely the part they wanted you to know and the reason why you were going after them. Excuse me. So you read some of those stories and you're like, oh yeah, this, this is a righteous target. We need to take care of this. So he doesn't keep, you know, doing what he's doing. Um, but more, the more satisfying part of that job was being part of these uh, these projects that basically there was a handful of gringos um, and we were training, we were basically so recruiting, selecting and training people from that country to do amazing things and to go after these targets themselves uh, with, you know, with basically the information that we could provide and and then we would be on target with them and and watch them do their thing and kind of guide them and advise them like in the true fid foreign internal defense way uh i found it very ironic that i had to get trained by the military to do that as a civilian but i i again i i felt extremely lucky to be one of 10 guys at the time that were physician assistant trained uh, SOCOM background, and I was always the medical guy on those projects. Uh, and it was really cool because after years of being in and out of some of these projects, you got to know those guys really well, and you got to know their families, you know, and their culture, uh, and to get a glimpse of that, that you had no business 
in that country, getting that like taste of their culture. And you really, I came to appreciate a lot of those families and, uh, you know, and Wally's a really good example at Black Rifle. Like, wow. Like the fact that, um, it's sad that he had to leave his own, you know, country of origin to be safe with him and his family. Um, but like guys like that are incredible. And there's countless stories of people in Iraq. You know, I worked specifically in Northern Iraq. So, uh, with the PUK, Mom Jalal Talibani and his, um, you know, Kurdish tribe, like they were amazing people in an amazing culture. So that's, it, it was such a positive glimpse into their culture. I, you know, I've felt very lucky to be a part of it and to see that side of that part of the world. Like uh, that was probably the coolest part of being over there. Have you heard of a Iraqi guy, uh, Johnny Walker, who I have I had Johnny on the show? No way. Yeah. Oh, wow. Him and Jason Tushin came on together and another incredible story. And you hear again, what, a, what an amazing lens into the Iraqi people and, you know, what a lot of those, the courage of a lot of the people that were yeah. there. Um, and I think that's the problem is which kind of segues to the other question. When we are the West think about, you know, the Middle Eastern conflicts, we're like, oh, we're at war with Iraq. We're at war with Afghanistan. We're not, you know, our military are out there hunting these horrible human beings in these countries who are oppressing their own people. So the kind of other side of the question, were there moments, when it's probably even more pertinent because you were a kind of a healer in, in your position, where amidst all this, you know, this death and destruction, you witness moments of kindness and compassion? Yeah. Um, and before we go any further, having mentioned Aaron, my, my friend, my good friend, uh, I've been on a couple of podcasts where I have a disclaimer and, uh, and then I've been on other podcasts where the disclaimer didn't come up because I was describing selections or processes that are really super tough and not many people make it through. And, you know, what I did to go through it and, you know, uh, trying to help as many people along the way and, and on One's Ready podcast, that whole thing is is set up for uh, college kids and high school kids to set them up for success when they enter the special warfare pipelines. Um, so the disclaimer is, is although I'm PA trained, I am not a practicing physician assistant. I am not licensed uh, by the state of Florida to practice in a hospital here. I... Although I love medicine and being in remote areas and being able to help people in that way and get them to a surgeon as fast as possible so that they have a chance, um, the hospital thing is not my jam. Like, like I told you, it's not mine either. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> and Aaron Holly, he works at like three different emergency rooms and he's one of the few PAs in the country that is actually signing doctors like MDs and DOs off on different procedures to work in emergency rooms. Like, hey, if you're gonna work in this emergency room, go see Aaron Holly, because until you're signed off, you're not officially working in this ER. So that's like, and he's super high end, his emergency medicine is, you know, probably unmatched when it comes to most physician assistants and arguably a lot of doctors as well. So Aaron, there's the disclaimer, uh, love you like a brother, and um, hopefully I'll catch up with you and Lee Schaefer soon. Um, but having said that, um, 
yeah, it's, you know, you have these horrible events, these horrible, you know, gunfights, you know, and you hear a C-130 yell when, you know, basically call over the radio Winchester and they're, you know, they carry a lot of ordnance and when they're out, it's, it's really a bad day for the people on the ground, at least the guys that have comms with them. Um, so to be able to, to help guys that are injured, uh, shot up, um, to patch them up enough to get to a surgeon so that they could really be saved on their table, uh, is a privilege for sure. Um, or to even just have a family member of somebody from one of your projects come in, uh, and, you know, get them special medical care that they have no business. Like some of these people in some of these areas have never even seen a doctor, much less know what a doctor is or a medical provider. Um, you know, and to have somebody bring in a, this ancient looking person <laughs> come in and you just look in their eyes and you can't imagine the history that they have behind them. They're just these amazing people. And, you know, to get them to an internist, let's say, and figure out that he has a kidney problem and, oh, here's, here's how we're going to, you know, extend this guy's life. Um, it's pretty cool. And like I said, I, I consider it a privilege to go into some of these countries and, to um you know help as much as you can beautiful well, i think again it's so important for people to hear you know all the good that happens and this this question has pulled out so much so so much so many areas of humanitarianism that branches of the military do you know we just always see as the cnn and the fox and you know the the street fighting and we don't see all all the goodness, all the, the local villages that are being treated in clinics and even animals, you know, the oh, military yeah. vets that are, are, you know, patching up local animals and obviously the, the military animals too. I mean, these are stories that we need to be told. It's funny you just mentioned animals because right before you said that, I was thinking of being in Texas for Hurricane Harvey as a pararescue element and flying and, and getting some of these people off their roofs and figuring out at the guardian center in georgia how we get a dog who does not want to go into a helicopter into the helicopter and to safety with the family uh and we would cut holes at the bottom of jump bags or um God, aviator kit bags we'd cut four little holes and we put their little paws in them and then we'd link them up and for hurricane harvey we had these big mesh bags that were super tough um but we'd get the dog in there and you didn't have to cut holes in them. They were, they were big enough to where you could have them. You'd just hook them on your harness and you'd hoist down with them. And, um, but to be in these hurricane spots and help all these families in high winds doing these super high dangerous hoists, um, at night, you know, 150 plus foot hoist to these roofs and, and get these families to safety. It was really, really, really cool. Um, and then, to before that, um, with Aaron and Nate Langley and a couple other guys, um, we went down to Haiti to make sure this group was safe right after that 2010 earthquake. And, um, you know, to go there and, and to get somebody who with an, this injury to his eye to an ophthalmologist on the USS Comfort, you know, and to be able to affect and help people like that. It's, uh, you know, it's it's kind of why guys like us get into those fields so we can help people and it's it's nice to be in a position to do that 
mm-hmm. and well, do your job. At the irony, I I was in Orange County, Florida, um, when the Haitian earthquake hit, and I proactively sent you know communication to my command, like, "Hey, I'm a, a basic French speaker." You know, I think I think I was a medic by that point. Um, you know, always sending people over. It's like right on our doorstep. And it was kind of like standby, standby. Then they put out a, a request, okay, put your name in. And then they were sending the USAR teams back. And yet on the news, they were still pulling people out. So I never understood that. Like, A, surely they needed, you know, boots on the ground. And B, what a great training opportunity simultaneously to send your, you know, USAR guys, your your medics, you know, especially if you've got some sort of element of bilingual. We had a lot of, you know, Haitian-born firefighters too would have been invaluable over there. Oh, yeah. Um, And they just didn't. They just didn't send anyone. It, it, God, it pissed me off so much because we're watching the TV and they're literally still pulling people out alive and they've yeah. pulled all our teams out. Yeah, it's, there was a lot of groups down there and it was really like rescue teams from uh, different parts of Latin America, different parts of Asia, Um one of my best friends uh, from New York City was an NYPD guy, Rich Miller. Uh, so shout out to Rich. But um, he he was one of the guys that helped create the emergency response teams um, in New York City. And uh, so he was down there at, in Haiti really shortly after that earthquake. So they were one of the teams that went down and stayed down there. And I think even New York was like, hey, time to come home. You know, infectious disease is about to ravage that island. So we're pulling you out. Like, no, you're not. We're not done. You know, so uh, that was the kind of guy Rich was. Um, There's a really good YouTube video of him describing um, he was the guy who went and got an American flag. And it was the first flag hoisted between the two towers after 9-11. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll send you that link. But, um, you know, you would think it was based on that interview um, that it was the year after that or or soon after that event. Um, But it was it was years and it was like 2017. And, you know, you can see the emotion and, and everything that went into handling that event. Uh physically psychologically i mean i I can't even imagine being at ground zero and doing as much as you can for all the humans that were affected by that uh you know and you talk about you know the suicide rate for the military and there's uh you know rich would call me and go yeah we just lost another one and just the um the the fire and police communities are affected it's it's uh interesting to see the uh, similarities of what soldiers go through, firemen go through, police go through, uh, organizations you would never think. The NFL, a lot of TBIs, a lot of anger management, a lot of depression, a lot of suicide, you know, once they finish their careers, like, you know, all these different industries and and communities affected by these similarities. You know, it's it's sad, but uh, there's a lot of nonprofits that, never existed even five, 10 years ago that are, that are doing amazing things for these communities to try and reverse that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's important, you know, for this cross-pollination, which is why, you know, I'm a firefighter, but you look at the, the library. I mean, there's a firefighter on here probably every six, seven episodes, and that's deliberate because 
I want to get the NFL physicians and, you know, the special operations, you know, gurus. And I mean, I just had uh, Chad Wilkinson's um, widow Sarah on. He wow. was a SEAL Team 6 guy. And, you know, she's convinced. I think they did, I think it did post-mortem um, on him and they confirmed the TBI was behind his suicide, you know, his... his so he and I went through training together. Really? So, so my first six months of the 18 Delta course has a certain amount of other branches. Um, and so one of those populations is the guys who have just graduated BUDS at the time. So now the Navy has special operations corpsmen or special operations medics. At the time, there was uh, SEAL medics. So part of their pipeline to be a SEAL medic in a SEAL platoon, and I think even before they went to STTS um, to get their bird, they had to go through the first six months of the 18 Delta course and get their paramedic card with us. And then we ended up staying for another six months, and another population of SEALs that had done multiple platoons would drop into the second six months to get their IDC rating or independent duty corpsman rating. It was either that or go somewhere like uh, Balboa for a year. But they could do it in six months with us. So a lot, you know, especially guys at six would do that. Um, but Wilkinson was there and his dad, huge on the TCCC committee. I think, I want to say he's an ophthalmologist. I can't remember what his dad does, but really? he came and guest spoke uh, to our class. It was the first Albright class, like I said. Um, Nate Brown, um, Scott Oates, Otis of the Night. Um, a lot of good SEAL friends uh, from those courses. But, yeah, when I heard about everything that happened surrounding his um, his event, I just, you know, it, it, it makes you want to help more to make sure that that doesn't happen to any of your other friends or anybody else for that matter. Yeah. Well, I think what makes it even more tragic, I mean, it's as, as tragic as it possibly can get, but when you have, you know, members of the military that have survived combat and then come back and die by their own hand. You have, you know, police and fire that have survived all these, you know, structure fires or mass shootings and then end up yeah. taking their own life. And and it's what's maddening to me is when you really get the greatest minds from physical health and mental health and psychology and psychiatry and you start breaking it down and you learn about childhood trauma and TBIs and sleep deprivation. These are preventable things. Obviously, TBIs, you know, if you're in, in the military and you're taking all these, you know, breaching rounds and, um, or breaching explosions, excuse me. Yeah. There, there's, there's going to be some sort of impact, but there's so many areas that we can improve on. We can't resolve them. You can't, you know, not be in a combat zone. I can't not make entry in a structure fire, but right. I can certainly make the work week of a firefighter to the point where they can have their ample recovery and not die from cancer two years before they even retire, for example. And I think that's the thing is there are solutions. But what I see in my community is the mighty dollar is put ahead of the well-being of our men and women. And I'm sure, well, I know, I'm sure I know, despite so many well-intentioned people within the military, there are elements of, for example, the VA, you come out, you have these mental health elements, they prescribe you pills. And then fast forward, you know, there's another coffin with another flag on, you know, with a bunch of people weeping and, you know, whether it's police, fire, military, and, you know, like I said, even the NFL, should we really be getting men and women, you know, expending people for our entertainment? 
if it's that dangerous that these TBIs are killing our, you know, combat athletes, are there other ways of, you know, entertaining ourselves as at the expense of someone's life? Yeah, the um, one of the things I just thought about um, is I know the SOCOM community as a whole is really trying to turn the tide on a lot of it. Um, and it's through a program called the POTIF program. And my reserve unit even has a program now. So my reserve conventional rescue squadron has what's called a POTIF program, Preservation of Force and Family. So um, when you go back five years ago and about 80% of our squadron wasn't hard broke, but they were DNIF, which means they can't jump, dive, or because of a medical reason. So whether it's chronic or acute, like there was over half of our guys that couldn't actually go out and do their job. So um, the tier one units had the money and the fourth, it actually, I think everyone was thinking it, but um, the tier one units were the ones that actually had the money to do something about it. And so they had the those kind of programs first. And then once people saw the results of um, the positive results of those POTIF programs on their members in those units, SOCOM was like, okay, that's it. Every, all Hard stop. We need to look at this. We need to get this for all our guys. And then, you know, uh, as those career fields you know, got those POTIF programs in or something along those lines that took care of their unit uh, physically. Uh, mentally was a huge component. And also the family. Like that was a big part. If you had problems at home, you can't think straight downrange or even at your unit. Like you, you've got, you've been away too long and you're about you're about to go through a divorce or you're going through a divorce, which is, is a big thing in all the communities you've mentioned during this podcast. Um you know, how can we turn the tide on those things and make it better for the member mentally, physically, psychologically, spiritually even. Um, so there's a big, big part of that. And I'm not saying that each POTIF program has a psychiatrist in it, but they have at least a social worker, if not a psychologist, to sit down with members and say, hey, take a knee, take some deep breaths, tell me how it's going. How's it going at home? You know, that's huge. That never existed 10 years ago. Not not for a unit like my reserve unit down at Patrick Air Force Base, and it does now. So I know people are trying, um, and it's not a 100% solution, of course, but it's better than, than nothing. Yeah. And it's better than what existed or didn't exist uh, just a few years ago for us. So uh, I'm thankful that that leadership has, you know, stepped up and, and the units are executing as best they can with the budgets they have to help the guys in the, in the community, the guys and girls, because the support element's a huge part of, you know, people going out onto those X's and doing their jobs. Like everybody's important to make that happen. So it's really cool to watch programs like that and, and the results that you get after just a couple of years. Well, I think the other kind of unseen or, or less discussed area is performance. Like when you have all your ducks in the, in a row and you are mentally, um, healthy, I guess for lack of a better word, that's when you can go in at the flow state. That's when you can operate at the highest level. But if you are, you know, battling addiction and, you know, you've got this maelstrom in your mind because your, you know, home life is terrible. 
you're not going to perform as well on the fire ground, on the battleground. So it's it's an absolute win-win. But again, it's putting that human element, putting that health before wealth kind of thing to oh, yeah. where, you know, your biggest asset isn't your fire engine or your Hercules. It's the men and women that are operating all those pieces of equipment to you know, to facilitate whatever your job position is. So I don't know if I don't know if fire or police have this, but I know for our reserve squadron, the three oh eighth RQS at Patrick, uh, and all the RQSs, how they sold it to the Air Force was, yes, it's a lot of money. Um, but look at what you do for the F fifteen. That weapon system has a maintenance program. Well, in this career field these humans are the weapon system. Like we, had, they have a lot of gear, but at the end of the day, if this human doesn't work, this weapon system doesn't work. So I don't know if there's a way to that translates for because you guys have a maintenance program for all your fire engines, all your gear, every every piece of kit you carry into a house. Like there's a there's a record of how that's maintained. There's probably not one for you guys. I'm guessing, but I don't Absolutely. know. I mean, there's, there's some departments doing great things, but cool. sadly, I, I feel that they're the anomaly, not the norm. You know? So, well, I want to transition to movies. Oh, so, boy. you know, one go. thing we got in common, <laughs> I mean, obviously we've got the kind of emergency me- medicine element in common as well, but um, there's the stunt world. So you mentioned Nick McKinley, um, you know, getting you in. So kind of walk me through yeah. the whole time you're, you know, on this amazing military path, this medical path. Um, and now, you know, you've got this other kind of branch that starts to stem out. Yeah, I think we talked a little bit about earlier. I, I kind of got a glimpse at the movie industry, and it was the spring of 2001 in Columbus, Georgia, that little army town, <laughs> uh, Benning School for Boys, basically. Uh, and they had two feature films in that little town. One was Black Hawk Down, um, Ironically, Tom Hardy was in that, and we're—he's a great friend, amazing human being. He was with the Black Hawk Down crew, and they were being trained up to go to Morocco to film by Third Ranger Battalion, which is right there with the 75th Ranger Regiment in Fort Benning, Georgia. And across the street at Ranger School, we were soldiers with Mel Gibson uh, was was filming that whole cast and crew, and they filmed a lot there. All the Vietnam scenes were actually filmed in California, but there was a lot at Fort Benning to get them ready to go and deploy and and tell the story um, that they told during that movie. So they basically did all their pre-production training there. And and I was in a unique position. I had just finished PA school. I had just finished my rotations at Fort Benning, Georgia. And there was a gap between the two active duty PAs at Ranger School. So I got put on orders by the National Guard on loan to ranger school to man the clinic there and and do sick call in the mornings and and luckily for me it was in the spring and i got to train up for best ranger competition again so i felt lucky to be there um but during one of our briefs they were like hey you and jamie kirby you guys are going to take the cast and crew through the derby queen this famous uh army obstacle course down there at ranger school and so we took you know mel gibson barry pepper and it was funny, Mel Gibson had just gone through the string of uh, Lethal Weapon movies. So he showed up before any of the cast and crew. He had a driver, and they came up early before the bus with the rest of the crew, like Barry Pepper and some of the other guys. Well, the rest of the other guys, actually. He was early. And so 
Jamie and I were there early. We went through the course and made sure it was, you know, all the obstacles were good to go. And then uh, one by one, ranger instructors started showing up and they're never early. And uh, we're like, hey, what are you guys doing here? Hey, we, who's showing up? What's going on? And they had kind of caught wind that, you know, this this cast was showing up and we were going to take them through the Derby Queen. So we were all kind of standing in a circle as you do in the military and everyone's just giving each other shit and telling stories and lies and, you know, everything that comes with military culture. So Mel Gibson pulls up and he walks up and he kind of walks kind of uphill to our circle and, you know, as you do in the military, when somebody walks up, you kind of leave a gap for him and he fills it and the circle's complete again and you keep talking shit. And um, so after a couple of stories and Mel Gibson's laughing, and he's kind of getting into it. Uh, he kind of looks across the circle and I'm directly across from him and he goes, hey, uh, I, I noticed you're the only one with a special forces tab. And I said, yeah. And it, so in my mind, I was like, oh, lethal weapon. He's probably done his homework. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. yeah hey, I'm with uh, 19th Special Forces, 2nd Battalion out of West Virginia. And I'm in the Guard. And um, I, I've worked with 7th and 5th Group just because of dive and Spanish and some other things. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm in the Guard. And uh, I'm on loan to Ranger School because there's, you know, they're waiting on their active duty physician assistant to come in. And luckily for me... You know, I get to train up for best ranger and hopefully compete, uh, but we'll see. And he goes, yeah, I, uh, you're an officer, and I, I noticed you're, are you, you're not a doctor. It has an S on the caduceus, and like, full blown, like he's, you know, seen the different insignia in the army, and I was like, oh yeah, that's that S is for medical specialty corps. You know, I'm a physician assistant. Where'd you go to school? And dude, all of a sudden the instructor's like, oh my God, Mel Gibson is grilling RJ. What's he, <laughs> what is going on? And uh, yeah, hey, I went through the inner service physician assistant program. So I went to the military school to become a PA. And he goes, huh, well, let's see how well they trained you. And everyone's like, oh. <laughs> and Mel Gibson was like, um, hey, you know, I've got two bulging discs. So what do you suggest? I was like, well, that's kind of open-ended, but. Okay, here we go. Uh, I saw you walk up the hill. You you had a pretty good gait. Um, not really thinking about bulging discs, but you know what? Probably everyone in this circle has bulging discs. So until you can't make it to the bathroom without shitting yourself, I would not let anybody cut on me. I don't know how you run, but you walk pretty good. So, you know, I don't care what neurosurgeon is going to work on your spine. Uh, you probably have all the resources and money in the world to do your homework, which I'm sure you have. Whether it was orthopedic or neurosurgical specialties, you probably scoured the globe on who was, you know, number one through three, and you probably interviewed them all. But I don't care what any other records show. Once that scalpel breaks your skin, all bets are off. Everybody's different. So um, good luck with that. I'd wait a little while before anybody cuts on you for bulging discs. And he goes, hmm. Well, that's exactly what the top three neurosurgeons in the world said. And uh, I guess they trained you pretty well. And <laughs> so all the instructors started laughing. and uh, But that was kind of my first glimpse into the movie industry. You know, I was a big fan of movies, loved movies. I was one of those kids that their dad dragged him to the movie theater to see Star Wars in the 70s. And there's lines around the building and, um, you know, I, I go into this movie Star Wars and it's like this whole world opens up and you're like, whoa, well, you know, we walked out of there just going, wow, we just 
that this is next level. Like this only movies are only going to get better from here. And what a story. And uh, the cinematography was amazing. So that's as a kid, fast forward to Mel Gibson grilling me at Ranger school. Um, and, uh, I won't get into the details I did earlier, but basically <laughs> I thought that was it for my career. Um, they offered me a speaking part and I actually went to Paris instead of the casting call with my girlfriend who uh, is still a good friend of mine, but yeah, not my girlfriend anymore. Um, and years later, uh, Nick McKinley, back to Nick, um, he, we had talked, I met him at the apprentice course in the summer of 2004. He was one of my pararescue instructors. And um, going through at over 35 as an E7 in the military, uh, so I was a master sergeant in the Air Force with the New York team going through the pararescue pipeline. And it was only because I had 16 years with special forces, obviously. So um, going through the course, I outranked pretty much all of my instructors minus the commandant and maybe his number two. Um, and I was definitely older or the same age as the oldest guy on those, those committees that were teaching the courses I was going through. So it was really fun to mentor 18 year old kids and, and, you know, early twenties guys through these courses and tell them, Hey, it's all going to be worth it. Like this is training is sucks, but when you get, to the job it's it's a blast you're not going to regret it do not quit like it's worth it and you're pushing yourself to be a better human and seeing what your limits are like keep driving on like this you know you guys are very lucky to get, be a paid athlete you're getting paid at indoc for the air force at the time in the summer of 2003 you're getting paid to work out four big workouts a day for 10 weeks like and they're paying you this is going to be awesome so uh, the other half of that coin was my interface with the instructors, which was interesting also um, because they pretty quickly found out where I'd come from and like, who is this crusty old E7? Like, what the <laughs> hell is he doing here? Um, and once they drilled down, you know, I, some were cool instructors, definitely some were cooler than others. Uh, and some were just guys that I could not wait to not talk to. Um, but Nick was one of those guys, Nick, Mike Montanez, Justin Shook, a couple other guys um, on that apprentice course committee. I kind of got to know and, and, you know, as much as a student can kind of not mentor them, but became kind of loose friends with them and, and had some good conversations with them. And um, what came up a lot with instructors was, um, hey, you know, what's outside of the pararescue career field? Like what what's you know, you're, you're working for different places. You were in special forces for a long, for a long time. Well, what's out there? So as much as I could tell them, and, and I would, I would deflect a lot of those questions with, Hey, have you read this book? Have you read that book? Like you need to read. Yeah. I mean, there's a thing called Google now and you need to go search the questions that you're asking me and you're going to find a lot. You'd be surprised what you're going to find open source. Um, so go do your homework and, you know, and then, ask me questions about things you've read. But generically, here's what's out there. Uh, and you guys have a very cool skill set. Like in Special Forces, there's not too many Whiskey 9 people or, or Halo and Scuba qualified guys. Like, But every PJ slot is, is a Halo Scuba slot. Like, And you're all National Registry paramedics. Like, This is amazing. 
So um, there's two fields that need to be on every team, no matter what they are, whether it's a ground project or an ODA or a SEAL platoon or anything higher above those vanilla teams. Uh, it's a medical person and a communicator. You have to have both before you can break wire. So um, you guys are in a cool spot. Everybody needs you guys. So, you know, good luck. Well, Nick and I stayed in touch and he was like, hey, I want to, I want you to send my resume wherever you can and I want to do something else. I was like, man, you just got married and had a kid. Like, are you sure? Be careful what you wish for, man. <laughs> uh, and it's not like, you know, I go to a couple of funerals a year and it's not exactly, you know, the grass is always greener. Like, really think about what you want and why you want it because, you know, you might actually get it and, you know, be careful when you do. You got to, you're going to find yourself in some pretty crazy spots. And some days you're going to be like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. And other days you're going to be like, there's no way, like, it doesn't matter what they're paying me. This is not worth it. And everything in between. So, you know, and after hounding me for a while, I was like, okay, all right, send me your resume. I am going to shotgun it to a couple different places and, and I'll talk to a few people, but you and I have never deployed together but I will talk about how we have interacted and we'll see what happens. So almost a year goes by, you know, eight months or whatever it was. And I hadn't talked to him and I, I did shotgun his resume out there and he called me and he goes, um, Hey, uh, you know, I said, Hey Nick, how's it going, man? I haven't talked to you in a while. And he goes, well, I got good news and bad news. And I was like, all right, well, what's the good news? And he goes, I'm trying out for your place. And I was like, okay, well, you know, what, what section? And he goes, mobile security. And I was like, okay, well, it's a month long tryout, you know, stay healthy, keep your sense of humor. They're probably going to tell you, you suck every day. Just keep doing your best. You'll be fine. You know, well, man, what's the bad news? You getting a divorce over this? And he started laughing. No, no, no. But you're going to have to come to Albuquerque and do my job. I was like, oh, or, you know, are you a civilian at the schoolhouse? What, what do you mean your job? And he goes, no, look, I've, I've already got your plane ticket lined up. So you just come out here. I'll talk to you. And then if you if you want to do the job, it's yours. If you don't, you just fly home. I was like, Nick, you, you live in Albuquerque, man. I, there's like with my background, like there's nothing that secret. Just tell me generally what I'm coming out there to do if I'm not going to be at the apprentice course as a civilian instructor. No, no, just come out here. I'll tell you. All right, Nick, <laughs> I'm hanging up. And he goes, okay, it's a movie. And I just hung up on him. And I was like, and he called me back and he was like, you're such an asshole. I knew you were going to do that. And I was like, Nick, do you know where you're trying to, you can't be in a movie. I can't be in a movie. What are you doing? And he goes, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's close to a thousand a day. You, all you have to do is answer their stupid questions. I was like, okay, you should have probably led with that. <laughs> uh, and what do you mean? He goes, nope, you're not on screen. You're not in front of camera. You're literally a military advisor answering questions from the director, from Christian Bale, and whoever else has questions. And it's about what they're doing or what they want to do on film. And you say, this makes sense and this does not. And this is why. Here's other options. And I was like, I don't know. Sounds pretty good. So I end up on the set of Terminator Salvation. And uh, I ended up hitting it off uh, with Christian Bale, who is an amazing great great person and i got to work with him again luckily uh and tom struthers who was the stunt coordinator uh for that movie and then tom and i had a conversation he was like hey you know i i know you have to leave um 
but I'd like to work with you again. So can I get your contact info and, you know, what do you think? And I was like, and we talked for a little while about it. And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, if, if my schedule allows it, you know, yeah, I, I had a good time on this, but I do have to go. And if it works out again to do the same thing, I'd be happy to help. So he calls me months later, like probably six to eight months later and says, hey, how'd you like to be in a Leonardo DiCaprio movie? I was like, <laughs> okay, what are we talking? And uh, so I helped him with a couple scenes during that movie for Inception. And then it kind of went from there. Like Tom has dragged me onto all sorts of shows. And uh, we just worked on Jack Ryan season three this past year. And uh, he's still a really good friend. Um, and I've been uh, very fortunate. Um, this year, the uh, budgets haven't been great with my reserve unit. And we were just told before I got on Jack Ryan, hey, we're not going to be able to bring you on orders that much this year. We, our budget's skinned way to the bone. So, and then some contracting things, they were being, they were basically putting out the same information. And I have a contract job with SpaceX and, uh, but that's launching humans into space, training them and then being there for the launch and the recoveries. Um, so in April, we're going to launch crew four and bring back crew three. Um, but, between Jack Ryan's season three and uh, Extraction 2, the Netflix Chris Hemsworth sequel, uh, I've been really lucky to actually have a job and get a paycheck and work with some amazing people. So, yeah, that's kind of how I got in the movie business. Well, it's interesting as well for people to hear, I think, because the transition out can be so challenging for, you know, military first responders and, you know, and other professions, of course, but... And there's yeah, multiple reasons, loss of tribe, loss of purpose, you know, you identify as, you know, the PJ or, you know, whatever profession you were in. And I see such a, a kind of lack of appreciation of the skill set that you acquire doing those positions. And, you know, what you see, for example, in the fire service is they end up just teaching at a fire academy. Well, that's, you know, awesome, but it's not very imaginative. You, know, you are a leader. You are a jack of all trades, master of none. You literally are at the end of a phone when someone says, I think myself and all the people around me are going to die and the police can't help us. We need you guys. You know, that, that's it. So the application can go in so many different areas. And, you know, films are one of them. I mean, you've got a lot of fire TV shows and, and movies. Actually, one of my friends, uh, um, Rebecca Vickers works on uh, Chicago Fire as a stunt person. I worked with her in Japan years ago. Wow. So she's not a firefighter, but she, you know, so there's there's all these projects that you can work. And yet the, you know, the entertainment industry is not the first thought. It's just another example of how you can take a skill set from, you know, a, a profession that served and now apply it to a different profession that, doesn't beat you up as well. I mean, I, I still get beat up as a stunt guy, but the <laughs> yeah, intelligent sure. guys that are older are tend to do more of the advisor yeah, coordination coordinator. roles. Yeah. yeah, and and shout out to Eric Salas who linked us up. Yes. Uh, so I am on Extraction 2 with him and he's doing a lot of the primary rig stunt rigging for that show. Um, and it, it's funny you say direct application because um, – there's a family in my unit down at Patrick and their dad was a cello scout. Uh, you probably need to get their information and, and talk about one of the best counterinsurgency units in history. Uh, and I mean world history, like that, that 
their history is is amazing. But uh, Mark Forshaw had two sons and a daughter, and I took his youngest son, Greg Forshaw, who's a PJ at my unit, and took him on Dunkirk with me. Great and, film, by the way. Yeah, amazing no, film. I, I, Christopher Nolan is just uh, it, Tom Struthers again. Like called me, hey, we didn't budget for this, but you know we're about to send a multi-billionaire in a Spitfire, a couple Spitfires that he owns, and he's going to be one of the pilots. Like, can you put a rescue plan to cover <laughs> them while they do all their action over the English Channel? So I was like, okay, uh, and I had a bunch of basically questions or we call them RFIs requests for information. And it's like, how big's the area? How many different units are going to be going at once? How many people are going to be in the water? How many people are going to be in the air? How many aircraft? How many, what's the maritime department look like? You know, Tom came back, he answered every question and I gave him my plan. Okay. I need six PJs. Uh, I need me. I need uh, a couple trucks. I need maybe one boat, maybe two, I need a safety helicopter, and uh, I need you guys to rent gear that we're not going to drag over there. We're going to rent it there, and then we'll have it on hand to work on whoever we end up hopefully never working on. But that's my rescue plan. Here it is in an email. He goes, okay, I'm taking this production. This looks great, RJ. The maps, the plan, it, this, this is awesome. This is perfect. This is exactly what I want. So the next day he calls me. He goes, yeah, uh, you can't have any of that. Uh, in fact, they told me that you would be lucky to have a job because they didn't budget for you. You're going to have to bring all your own gear and you can bring one person with you. I was like, Tom, that's not good. And he goes, nope, it's not. And he goes, so how do you feel about it? And I told him why that was not good. And he goes, I want you to articulate that in an email. I want you to send it to me and I'm going to blast that to production. So it covers not just you, but me. I'm the... I'm the stunt coordinator. I'm responsible for the safety of cast and crew is one of my primary jobs. And you just spelled that out, uh, you know, perfectly. So, um, so I, I sent that in an email and I grabbed, I told a bunch of guys at my unit, um, Hey, I have this opportunity. I can take one guy who is clear from this date to this date. And Greg Forshaw, Mark's youngest, uh, was, the guy who was clear for all those dates. There was no start and stop. I couldn't say, oh, this guy's good for this month and then I'll fly him home and bring this other guy in. There was none of that because I was actually worried about him having to pay for his own ticket. Same with me. So I was like, oh, this is going to suck. So anyways, Greg went over. He just crushed it. Uh, he was awesome. Never complained. And we worked. When you're on a Chris Nolan movie, you're working long hours. And Dunkirk, you're outside it's 50 knot winds minimum there was rain you were wet all the time and it's summertime and and on the north coast of france and uh which sounds nice right um we're gonna be in a five tom sold it to me we're gonna be in a five-star hotel bring your kids we're gonna be on the beach oh my god it was it was the north coast it was the english channel which is always cold which I didn't really calculate. I just heard summertime <laughs> coast of France, you know, I'm thinking yeah. Saint Tropez. No, none of that. It's, we froze our asses off and it was, you know, you're biting into a sandwich on a dock and you're just crunching sand because the wind's just blasting you from all directions. Um, but it was, it, it was a really cool movie and uh, it was a small, it was a core stunt team and, and Greg and I got to do a lot on that. And, uh, all the flying sequences, Christopher Nolan never has a second unit. So you're either on the beach uh, or on the dock 
or on a boat doing something dynamic. And then whenever the World War II planes flew, Greg and I were in a safety helicopter um, with uh, this guy. He had this, uh, he was in the Royal um, Navy and he flew helicopters in the North Sea. And Will Banks was an amazing pilot and we were super confident he could drop us near any Spitfire and put us right on those pilots and we could get them out. Um, so when they flew, we flew. And when they weren't flying, we were filming in the other two environments, maritime and ground or the beach. Um, it was it was a really cool experience. And fast forward to Extraction 2, and I wanted to bring six to eight PJs on this show because... Patrick Newell, the producer, was like, man, we had like broken femurs. We had dengue fever on extraction one. I can't believe, like, I don't want to say what he told me, but he was very worried about extraction two because Sam Hargrave, the stunt backgrounded director, who's amazing, by the way. I I love watching him do his thing too. Um, Sam Hargrave was going next level stunt wise for extraction two. He wanted to top everything he did in extraction one, which was pretty incredible. Um, so he goes, you know, we're landing helicopters on trains. We're like going to be flying up skyscrapers in Vienna where the wind is crazy. Like I am really worried. And I was like, okay, well, what's the biggest thing you're worried about? And he goes, I'm landing. I'm worried about landing a helicopter full of people onto a train full of people in the mountains. And, and what that might look like. He goes, I don't even know where to start. And I was like, okay, let's um, just, in my brain, what's happening is a helicopter full of people is crashing into a train full of people and they're rolling down a hill and hopefully it's only 100 feet or so. But if not, it's going to be a lot further than that. I'm not sure which mountains you're talking about, but that sounds horrible. (laughs) You need a rescue team managing a rope system to pin those aircraft to the hill so it doesn't go any further and then another rescue system to manage people and equipment, you're going to have to put out the fire. You know, in my brain, it's worst case scenario. You're going to have to put out the fire. You're going to have to pry open different things that people are trapped in, in those helicopters and trains. You're going to have to get them loose, package them, hoist them out by another helicopter, and get them to the right surgeons and and pray they, they live through the event. And that's a lot of people. Um, and he goes, Oh my God, I didn't even think of that. (laughs) He goes, okay, what do you need? And so I sent him a plan and he said, okay, you and four people, um, you come over and be the team. And why, why do you need so many people? And I kind of told him and he goes, yeah, I wish I could bring more people, but I, I'm, I'm lucky they're going to probably approve this. I'm going to make them say, this is my minimum and you guys are all going to come over. So Greg's older brother, Brandon Forshaw, also a PJ in my unit, is on this movie. Dave Johnson, Josuel Garcia, and Tim Anders are the four PJs from the Florida team that are over in Prague right now working on the movie. Um, I'm, I'm home for a week or so, so we could talk. Um, in fact, uh, my family is still sleeping, so um, yeah, I, I told him I would be take him to lunch after we're done here, but... Um, yeah, I'm home for a week or so while they're still handling all the business up there. But all the dangerous stuff should be done. Uh, the helicopter stuff and train stuff is done. All the car crashes and, and car chases and motorcycle chases are done in the forest. And the whole Vienna part is done. 
So there's a few things to do on camera, and then hopefully everything ends at the end of March or beginning of April, and they're wrapped and they go into post-production. But what I've seen on uh, camera and what my guys have been exposed to, this is uh, this is a really cool first show to be on for them. I, I'm really psyched for them, and I'm, I'm glad they're just crushing everything thrown at them because you know how it is on a movie set. Like it's super dynamic, especially with a with a director like Sam Hargrave and and an action hero like Chris Hemsworth and all the cast and crew is just amazing. So we've, we've all been lucky to be on the show, but for them to have their first movie or their first exposure to this entertainment industry, be this movie, I'm, I'm really psyched for them. Absolutely. Well, I want to transition to one more area so I can let you go. So you can go have lunch with your family. Um, Brigands. So talk to me about the inception of that. And then, you know, a great, a great kind of, uh, topic when it comes to using your skill set and applying it somewhere else. Yeah. So brigands. Um, so I, we're in this beach down new Smyrna beach. It's a small little surf town. Uh, it's touted as the number one shark bite capital of the world. So it keeps some of the tourists away, but it's Florida. So <laughs> you can't keep them all away, but it's a really cool little surf culture in town. Um, so I was walking into the one Irish bar on Flagler Avenue, uh, Tate and O'Brien's, and uh, it was during like a parade. And um, as I was walking, I noticed this guy, and he was clearly he was military, and he had a military style baseball cap on. And I, as I was walking by him, I was like, "Nice hat." And he goes, "Thanks." And then I turned and he kind of turned and we looked at each other and I saw in the back of his hat was a ranger tab. And I, and I saw him kind of turn like, you know, and he's kind of scowling at me. I'm like, that's weird. Okay. He's military. You know, it might be his thing. And, uh, I was like, were you in battalion or, or did you just go to ranger school? And he goes, I was in battalion. I was like, Oh, which one? And then when I said that, he just squared off on me and literally like we were going to fight. And I was like, oh, first bat, Savannah, Georgia, cool. And uh, he goes, were you in battalion? I was like, no, never in battalion. I just went to ranger school. He goes, how'd you go to ranger school? And I said, well, I, you know, I was in 19 special forces in the West Virginia Guard. And I was an officer and I, you know, I just, I felt like I had to go to ranger school. You know, it's a leadership school and I just wanted, you know, I'd heard a lot about it going, you know, getting my commission and, you know, after I got my SF tab, I went to ranger school. He goes, oh, really? Wow. And his whole demeanor changed. I was like, going to say, shoulders came down. down. <laughs> relax. And he goes, ah, you really went to ranger school? I was like, yeah. He goes, uh, okay. And he, this was a young kid. And, uh, or he way younger than me, I should say. Uh, he was probably in his mid-20s at the time. And uh, he goes, oh, hey, man, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of sorry. I, I was a little aggressive earlier. But me and my brother and my friends from First Bat, we're all, we all live here in New Smyrna now, and we got in this huge fight last night, and we just kicked the crap out of these guys. And we're basically our guards up because we know that they're going to come back with their friends, and they're probably somewhere on the street right now. And it was peanuts down the road that we got in this fight, so we're close to the, the kill box. And uh, I just started laughing. I was like, oh, fucking no surprise there. First bat guys getting into a fight. Sure, that makes sense. So anyways, he goes, hey, come over here. And his brother and his friend Shelby and a couple other guys were across the street watching us, watching the interaction going, hey, I think 
that's one of the guys we're about to get in a fight. So uh, Connor kind of waved him over and we all went into Tatum's and had a Guinness. But uh, he and his brother uh, had come out with these exact t-shirts. So the Ranger Diamond with Brigands Co., Brigands Company in it. Um, and they had these cross switchblades on the back of their shirt. And um, it was old English style writing. And I was like, oh, I dig the World War II, you know, Ranger Diamond. And they're like, oh, yeah. You know, I was like, where'd you get that shirt? They're like, oh, actually, we made them. I was like, oh, that's cool. And he was like, yeah, we were going to name our punk band after, you know, Brigands Company. But, you know, that kind of went away. But people like our shirts. And so, we, you know, we haven't made them in a while. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we're going to do something with them eventually. We're, we're all in. Um, Connor was like, hey, I just finished the MT. I'm in the police academy coming up. And I might go to the fire academy. I might not. I'm not sure yet. I was like, oh, and he goes, what I really want to do is become a paramedic. And I was like, I, I'm in a PJ unit right down the road. Like, I'm in a reserve unit, and you can have the military pay you to go to paramedic school, and you could be in my unit. And you were at 1st Ranger Battalion. Did you go to Halo or Dive School? And he goes, no. I was like, we'll give it to you as part of your pipeline. He goes, what? Like, I've heard about PJs. I've worked with them. They're, they're awesome. I was like, yeah, well, you should check it out. So that kind of started our initial conversation. But the more I, I said, hey, where's my shirt? You know, when are you going to print some more shirts? The more they were like, oh, we're in, you know, fire school or, well, I'm on probation at the fire department. So um, Connor uh, is the older brother. And these are two brothers out of Texas, in the Fort Worth area. And his brother Dylan, his brother Dylan works for, uh, New Smyrna Beach Fire Department and he's on the rescue rig right now otherwise he'd probably be here and Connor is actually he just went from he was deployed to the Middle East and uh, with his he ended up getting in the army guard and um, so there he went deployed to Eastern Europe and now he's in the Middle East and um, yeah as we kind of talked about these shirts I was like tell me more about this shirt and tell me more about your quote-unquote company well we don't have a bank account or a business license we just we're just making these shirts but you know it's kind of when you have these shirts you know it's it's service before self you know it's about integrity it's like when you're doing the right thing when nobody's looking and the more they talk the more i was like man that's the world needs more of that like that's awesome like that's you see a shirt like that and you hope for the the you know the idea behind that design to be something along those lines, you know, bring mil military to people in, in a simple way. Um, but something that makes them want to do and be better. And uh, so we talked about it and talked about it. And they were like, yeah, we're going to get her up and running, up and running. And so after a year, they're both on probation with their fire department. I said, hey, man, you're on a one day on, two day off right now. Like, get this going. Like, no kidding. This is the world needs this. Like the ideas behind that you're describing, we need to we need to get this up and running. Like, ah, you know, we're kind of busy. And then after a while, I was like, you know what? That's it. You guys are starting this thing. I really want to be a part of it. I'll I'll make sure you have all the right paperwork. I'll get a Florida business license for you guys. I'll start a bank account. I'll put the initial money in to get you up and running. Um. You know, maybe I can be one of the partners uh, and, and we can really take this thing to where I think it should go and, and where you've been talking about it going for years. So what do you think? And um, 
they were just like, well, we need to talk about it. Because I was talking to one and then I'd uh, talk to the other because they were on two different schedules. And so a couple of days later, they're like, RJ, what do we need to do? You're in. Like, let's do this. So as we were all three at the bank to sign the signature card for the business bank account, so all three of us would have access, I got a call from, uh, actually it was from Tom Hardy's producing partner, and they were about to do a production on a famous book that in the infantry we were all made to read. It was on a reading li- required reading list, but it was called The Things They Carried, and they were going to do a movie about that. Tim O'Brien. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So the more I talked to Dean Baker, um, I was like, hey, man, you know, we could take this past pre-production training because they wanted to do a boot camp and they wanted to do a behind the scenes documentary about the cast and crew. And it it was uh, the cast that they had was like the new Rat Pack. They were all up and coming actors. Tom Hardy was going to be the older actor kind of mentoring them through their this first collaboration on a big movie set. And I was like, hey, we can run, you know. And they sent me a video of Dale Dye running their boot camp for Platoon a long time ago. And I guess they took all the major actors like uh, Willem Dafoe, uh, Tom Berenger, God, What's his name? Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen. Mm-hmm. Like, and actually all the actors from that platoon. And they interview him like 20 plus years later. And they were like, tell us about boot camp. And so they did this documentary about back then. And they had some film footage and a lot of photos. And they put this documentary together. So I watched it. And Dale Dye just put him through the ringer. Like, and they started filming at the end of their boot camp. Like, they didn't even know they were on camera. Like, that's how tired they were. Like, they were smoked. That's where the Tropic Thunder kind of oh, parody comes from. Isn't yeah, it? for sure. And um, and it worked, right? They were nominated for multiple Oscars, and it was, you know, not a low-budget film, but for what they created, it was it was amazing how far they stretched that budget. Um, so I watched the video, and I got back on the phone with them, and Dean was calling me about this, and I said, look, what you need is, is cadre we're not going to beat the crap out of them, but they will be tired and they will know how to react. They will know immediate action drills for sure. They'll know how to patrol. They'll know small unit tactics and they will execute that script to the T. Um, so I'll need a couple of weeks with them, you know, weapons training into small unit tactics. And then I suggest that we keep the instructors throughout the production to mentor each of the principal actors because they are so young and to keep that mentality of, hey, listen, when you're in a unit and you're doing things like this, this is what you need to think about and this is what you do in this job position and and the whole nine yards. And my guys can be, you know, either close background or deep background, whatever you want with the stunt team and, um, you know, we'll get it done for you. And while we were having that conversation, I went back to the guys in the bank and I was like, hey, man, I think... I think the world has enough cliche former military t-shirt companies. Let's, let's do this. You know, let's be a consultant company. Let me, when you guys get your paramedic cards, like you guys can work for different agencies and stay with the fire department. You guys can be in the guard or reserve, be PJs, 18 deltas, whatever you decide or, or none of that, whatever. Um, But let's, let's give other vets jobs. Like I, I just got off the phone with this guy and this is what I'm thinking. Like you guys could be a part of that. 
you know, maybe not on this film because you're on probation, but, you know, I can get a few guys on this film and, and we can do that. And so that's kind of how we started the company. Like, Hey, let's, let's help where we can, when we can. And let's promote this idea of, of people, you know, of integrity and bringing that to our civilian industries, whether it's SpaceX, whether it's the movie industry, whether it's different projects, whether it's the fire department, the police department, whatever. Because actually Connor went and became a policeman for a little while and then went to DeLand Fire and he loves it over there. So, but now he's back in the guard. Dylan's thinking about, you know, what he's going to do with his fire career and he really loves NSB fire. So, um, you know, it's it's pretty exciting and it's kind of cool to give guys jobs and to bring four PJs you know, to, to basically prog and do this incredible project and have all their skills, like have them just crush the whole rescue plan for a helicopter landing onto a speeding train in the mountains. Like it's, it's really cool to watch everything execute. Well, well, we've gone all over the place with this conversation. There's a million things I'd love to ask you, the parallels of you know, the trauma medicine and the humility element of going to school after school after school as you get older and the, the space element, but that will have to be for a part two. So uh, for people listening that want to learn more about you, maybe want to learn about Brigands, you know, where are the best places online to do that? Uh, yeah, so if you go to brigandsco.com, so it's brigandsco.com is our website um, but you can find us on Instagram is probably the best place Dylan and Connor's on there occasionally Dylan's always on there and I'm on there occasionally but um, you can DM us or you can check out our feed um, on Instagram and that's uh, brigands underscore co co and that's it so it's b-r-i-g-a-n-d-s underscore co on Instagram, that's probably the best place to reach us and, and to see what we're up to. Beautiful. Well, RJ, I just want to say thank you. I mean, as I said, we've been all over the place from making movies to Vietnam vets and mental health and TBIs and everything in between. So I appreciate you inviting me to your home. Thank you for the omelet. And <laughs> <laughs> no, you're <laughs> quite you welcome. So and, and thanks for everything you're doing, like bringing these important topics to light through many different communities because there is a common thread and... Uh, you know, if we can leave places better than we found them, like that's the goal, right? So thank you for being a big, huge part of that and spreading the word. 